This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 533 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Thomas Jaron. Now, Thomas was born in Poland under a socialist regime. He found himself in the gulag as a political prisoner and ultimately sought refuge here in the U.S. He then joined the Navy, becoming one of the most elite warfighters on the planet with the Navy SEALs, serving alongside Ryan Parrott, Jocko Willink, and many other men who have been on the show. So we discuss a host of topics in this conversation. As you can imagine, his perspective on socialism, government overreach is absolutely pertinent to some of the horrendous things that we're seeing at the moment. And Thomas's stories are definitely red flags and warning signs for some of the areas that we are witnessing. Before we get to that very powerful conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Thomas Jaran. Enjoy. Drago, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Uh, thank you. It's nice to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Now, we were introduced by a mutual friend, um, Ryan Birdman Parrot. So let's start with that. How did you guys meet and tell me about your, your experience with him? Well, he's my teammate first and uh, I would like to give a shout out to my, uh, to my friend, uh, Ryan, uh, he is a founder and president of Sons of the Flag, a great charity organization whose mission is to uh, improve and revolutionize the ban care uh, and quality of life for veterans, but not only veterans, but all first responders. So this is something that we really needed, and especially that we know that ban care is not really making so much progress uh, in the last decades as it uh uh, as it, I think as it should, and uh, he is on the forefront uh, and the front lines up there uh, fighting for the best treatments and to improve that treatment. Uh, it is uh, uh, Sons of the Flags, Sons of the Flag, and uh, is run by and founded by Ryan Birdman, my teammate. I'm very proud of him. Beautiful. Well, I want to circle around to people who served for a profession that then come back and, and serve even after they transition out. So I know there's some other organizations that you're passionate about as well. Um, so first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I'm in Ohio. I'm a software engineer and I'm working for a national company as a software engineer. And I'm uh, uh, having a beautiful family. But I always remember that all of it I owe 
to America, to American people. Beautiful. Well, obviously, we're both immigrants. I'm from England originally. We have slightly different stories, so we're gonna we're gonna get into that kind of um, difference in parallels. So let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. I was born in Poland in the 1960s, and uh, my parents were. That was kind of odd because my mother was a teacher and uh, staunch. Uh, uh, Catholic and uh, really uh, somebody who opposed uh, socialism and communism uh, that more than so many people in Poland at the time. So my father on the other side was a high-ranked party official and uh, in the government, and uh, he was very successful. Uh, the marriage fell apart, of course, very quickly. So when I was, I believe, seven years old, and uh, this is how it, uh, my <laughs> my life started. So it was good family, but it fell apart, and I we had to move on. So me and my siblings uh, stay with my mom. Uh, she was a teacher while my father moved on to Warsaw, to Polish capital, and make a great career there as a communist. So I heard you talking on Jocko's podcast, and one thing that I think I didn't understand as, as a listener, and I think a lot of us probably, um, I was just at the Imperial War Museum. I went back to England um, with my son a couple of weeks ago, and you know the the the, the First and Second World War was kind of um, presented very very well. We know that you know Poland was invaded. We know that the atrocities that were were you know that happened um, by the Nazi people, by the Nazi soldiers, should we say. So walk me through liberation of Poland and then how you found yourself in, a, in an environment that wasn't, you know, the, the Polish people weren't thriving in the 1960s. Well, at that time, there wasn't so much of a liberation. I would say it was just uh, being thrown from one of the uh, socialism, Adolf Hitler, the national socialism, boot under the Soviet socialism and Joseph Stalin socialism boot. So uh, we are not talking about <laughs> uh, liberation. It was just uh, switching the uh, uh, the oppressor. Um, it happened on the bayonets of uh, uh, Soviet army. There was uh, no Poles were never in favor of socialism. They were never supporting this uh, 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 as a it atrocity. And um, so there was force on Poland at the time. This is how my parents ended up and eventually me living in the socialism. So my family survived uh, two, actually three different socialism, uh, socialisms. One was the Joseph Stalin socialism. Before that, it was Adolf Hitler national socialism. And then eventually Brezhnev socialism that I had a chance to experience. Good God, that's a, a lot. So I heard you talking about socialism and talking about communism. You had parents that had opposing political views. Again, for the for the listener, can you educate us on the differences and then and then what what steered you towards that one side that your mother mother was on? First uh, was the perversion of the history and moral values uh, on the on the socialist side. So. Um, the, all the opposition was suppressed. You were not able to voice any opposition 
to the uh, socialist regime. If you did, you could end up dead or in the best case in prison, like I did end up in prison. So in, in, in political, as a political prisoner. So um, uh, then again, we know that socialism is an evil system and is incompatible with freedom and democracy. It doesn't work because it's based on unrealistic theories that ignore human nature. It has failed everywhere and it, it, and it could destroy America as we are getting closer and closer to this model or closer. We are being pushed into that direction. Um, you know, like idealistically, the socialism looks for a socialism as a type of government that uh, supposedly creates complete equality in society and ends suffering in noble sounding area and a lot of young people who do not know a lot about socialism, never experienced it, are buying into it. But they need to remember to achieve this goal, the government, uh, God, the government promises everyone, all the lies, necessities, regardless whether you work or not, whether you desire to work or uh, whatever you're doing. So, but they need to find the money somewhere. So that, that it takes money by confiscating uh, a wealth and, and income to pay for all this stuff. And ultimately ended up, we all end up having a government that runs everything. And that happened in Poland. So we have these socialists and uh, they're making all kinds of decisions when you could not resist, you could not vote. We, they, Of course not, there, there was voting, uh, there, but there was the kind of socialist elections, I call it. Socialist elections is are where socialists, communists and Marxists always win. So what they did, they, 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 they sla uh, skewed the entire process so they can always win. And uh, of course, if you ask uh, people from that era who supported socialism, they say, well, it was legal, you know, there was, everything was done by the law. Of course, because the law was created so the socialists and communists could always win. Uh, and uh, until, uh, and it happened for decades. Uh, please remember once Poland fell under the socialist boot, that it took, I think, what, until 1990s, before Poland could free itself from socialism. So my mom was opposing it. My entire family was opposing it, except my father. Even his family was very outspoken about the atrocities, about the murders committed by socialists. By the way, let me bring some on the side. Just on the September 24th, I believe, in Poland, they discovered another uh, a grave of uh, uh, opponents of socialism from 1940s. And that was, uh, uh, it, it is, the, I think this bit still being investigated, but even decades after the socialism fail in Poland, any other countries, but in Poland, they are still finding mass graves of opponents of socialism. So yeah, my family was always opposing, except my father. My father bought into it and, um, I have to tell you that if you side with the socialists, if you are part of the system, you do fairly well for the for socialism, of course. But um, uh, so at that time, my family was living very well. But after father left, uh, we became impoverished, and uh, like most of the Polish society, we didn't have 
uh, we were cold because we didn't have, we couldn't afford warm clothes. Sometimes we didn't have a food to eat because uh, my mom, when she got up in the morning around three or four o'clock in the morning and stay in line, she didn't make to the end of the food line uh, to get to buy bread because they were sold out. So she was coming up, coming back home empty-handed to our apartment. And um, uh, now it looks kind of, this is bad, but at that time it was just a reality. It was just normal. So when I did not have a breakfast, or my siblings did not have a breakfast to go to school, it was nothing uh, unusual. And um, I didn't see it, nothing abnormal at the time because it was the system I grew up in. Um, but the opposition, even on my father's side, was very strong. Uh, my grandmother, I remember the when I was young, I think maybe four or five years old, or three years old, three, between three and five years old, I learned how to pray. And uh, every time we ended pray with, uh, with saying, God, please take all these communists back to hell or whatever they came from and make Poland free again. So <laughs> I remember I was asking my grandmother if they said they are so like a devils, do they have a horns and tail? And uh, if they breathe fire, my 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 grand grandmother say that yeah, they are worse than that. They murder people too. Quite some of them quietly, some of them uh, make it known to people to terrorize society. I didn't understand much of it at the time, but uh, I remember my father protesting, his mom, my grandmother, uh, saying that yeah, the communists are evil, and they are evil. So. Um, yeah, my position was there, uh, but uh, eventually my contacts with even with the other family ceased. So I was, uh, I stay and my siblings. We stay with our mother. Now, there's a, there's a common denominator. There's a great show on Netflix called um, "To Make a Tyrant," and they showed Idi Amin and Kim Jong Un and Hitler and Saddam Hussein, and it was the same process that they were all using: keeping the people hungry, um, you know, adjusting the education. And uh, when I was at this exhibit, there was this, this heartbreaking Auschwitz exhibit within this, this museum. And again, you see the book burning and you see, you know, the starvation. And even, you know, people think that, that the, uh, you know, Hitler's kind of drive was for just the Jews, but it was all political opponents as well and, and thinkers and philosophers and, you know, anyone that could basically rise to power and oppose that regime. Absolutely. Uh, socialism needs a villain. So uh, Joseph Stalin had kulaks, these wealthy peasants that he could actually focus the society and they hate on them, divide the society. So yes, Adolf Hitler had Jews, Jewish nation that he vilified and eventually murdered uh, so many millions innocent people. And I mean, look at this even in our country now, where uh, the Socialist Democratic Party is creating uh, another villain, the white people, that, that is vilifying an uh, entire segment of society. Uh, it, it, again, the socialism needs villain because this is how they rule, this is, it helps them to subdue uh, society, to demoralize society. This is why we have such a big push right now. Uh, denigrating family, family values, our moral values, our uh, patriotism. Those are very dangerous things for socialism. And that's what is happening here. I'm really, <laughs> I, I have to tell you that I'm afraid because so many things 
looks like deja vu from the socialist communist uh, uh, Poland uh, from behalf, uh, from the uh, Cold War era. Um, yeah, it's, we are now, in, I think, in a very dangerous spot right now, especially that so many young people are indoctrinating the Marxism and socialism, but really don't understand these systems. Yeah, well, that's gonna, we're going to talk about, obviously, the cancel culture and, you know, the social media element and, and the creation of, you know, one of your platforms. Um, back then, as a young boy in Poland, what was being done to break down, uh, you know, middle of the road news, uh, common, uh, excuse me, communication, good education? What was happening uh, in the 60s when you were growing up? There's many steps. Uh, one of them is suppression of dissent and in the very brutal way. It was to the point that eventually people started to censor themselves, kind of self-censoring to avoid persecution, to avoid uh, being cancelled. Um, so for people in America, that cancel culture uh, or the cancel, cancel idea is very new, is a novel, it's something that they never experienced, but this is nothing new to me because I've seen it. And this is why so many artists so many scientists in socialist countries, not only in Poland, were uh, were cancelled. Basically, they did not exist. Their work did not exist. Uh, the actors were never hired. The actors were being pushed on the margin of society, and some of them were starving. So uh, that's that's very um, typical for socialism, because people once they realize what it is, what it's trying to do to them, they they don't want it. So the only way for socialists to stay at power is by terror, by uh, uh, terrorizing people, and by uh, 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 trickery. So with you, you have a very unique kind of um, early life. You know, most kids in America are focusing on school grades and, you know, high school athletics. You ended up becoming part of the movement. So at what age did you start? Um, trying to disseminate good information, um, you know, and what was that like as a small Back child? Back to school for a second too, because also in Poland, we also strive to have a good grades. We also strive to learn, and our parents know internet, how great it is living in a socialist Poland. We are making such a great progress. And if you look at the West, people are living in the tents. People have no food. People are starving. They're being oppressed. Uh, especially the black population is being murdered left and right and sitting in gulags. Basically, this is what the, we were told at schools. Um, unfortunately, we didn't believe because our families were also educating us. And this is what is needed here in our country, I believe. Now, to counteract some of that cancel culture, uh, pa parents need to do what was done in Poland, counteract it monitor what children are learning at schools. And if this is perverted, say this is not true, talk to kids and teach them the moral values, teach them the right thing and the disagree with the, uh, the, the socialist take on, uh, on the history and, uh, and, uh, and the life. But what got me eventually to it is just like here right now, uh, all we hear how great um, the socialism is. And we already, uh, we did witness many times that the books were outlawed or removed from the libraries. The statues were toppled and removed. The flags were banned. 
that sounds just like the typical socialism to me. For people here who never experienced socialism, again, this is novelty. This is something new, and and uh, eventually that they will have to learn how socialism works. But until then, yeah. So that, that's what's happening here. But in Poland, we start our parents start teaching us about the stuff that we did not learn at schools or the things that were suppressed at schools or perverted. And uh, so as I grew older, that at the same time, people got so fed up with these lies that they start forming their own organizations. One of them was a trade union, Polish trade union called Solidarity. And that was the first in the entire Warsaw Pact independent trade union, independent from socialist democratic party, from socialist. Uh, please remember that Poland was never communist. This is, uh, uh, this is something that we say typically, yeah, communist Poland, communist Soviet Union. Neither Poland nor Soviet Union was communist by the, by the pure sense of communism. It was socialist. Even the name says there's the, the, the Union of Socialist Republics of, uh, uh, and same with Poland. So we're talking about the socialism. We're not talking about the pure communism because that would be disaster, total disaster. And I, I think you can see, we can see the, 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 the most close the country that came the closest to communism was Cambodia and we know what happened there I mean, one third of the nation perished uh, murdered by uh, would be communists or like communists and and their uh, thugs so so once people start forming these uh, organizations the one emerged the most powerful was the trade union and people wanted to be independent from socialism. That trade union didn't want to be part of any socialist party. Or, or and, and that's how it started. That's how my mother got involved. And eventually I got involved in the trade union movement. So the, uh, it became so powerful in Poland that socialists were afraid of it. And they start uh, planning a coup or more like the martial law. And in the December 13, 1981, they imposed martial law. So everything was prepared by that time. There was the list of uh, arrests, uh, uh, people to be arrested. And within one night, they arrest estimate, estimates goes from 25 to 60,000 people in one night. Um, so I remember I was there at the Solidarity, Solidarity headquarters at the time at night, with, uh, at midnight, these uh, thugs showed up and uh, start arresting everybody. I got arrested myself. They let us go. They kept only those people in leadership positions. And uh, we, we, we know, we knew they were arrested, but the official propaganda uh, was that they were just uh, placed in the detention centers for their own safety. Uh, they get, the socialist government was so concerned about their safety that they have to place them into the internment camps. That's what they call it. They were not arrested. They were interned. That's how the uh, the socialist government uh, called it. And that's, of course, is, is a lie. And uh, they were sitting in common prisons and uh, being uh, tortured, some of them, some of them being uh, uh, pressured uh, by socialist governments. 
And that's how also when I got involved into creating my own structures, I was sick and tired of these lies. Uh, and so we decided, oh, me and a group of my friends, we're going to do and create our own newspaper, our own little underground uh, news outlet. And we printed that and uh, then we distributed. Now, we were very naive. We really didn't know what we were doing. It was not really difficult to find who is spreading these, um, uh, these little newspapers. Uh, because we were leaving them in very public places. People were picking it up and uh, eventually we got caught. <laughs> so, um, yes, I, uh, I got sentenced to prison. I got three years prison sentence. And um, again, I was, I was political prisoner. I was not a criminal. Although the socialist government will present everything is criminal. So I was not sitting as a political prisoner. I was sitting as a common criminal because I dis disobeyed the law. It was illegal law, but still they put me in prison. Uh, I have to say I was fully exonerated after socialism fell. The government uh, exonerated me and everybody involved with my case. And uh, the documents about my case are posted online, are on the government site. A Polish government side, they are accessible to everybody. So the entire process of exoneration and the entire process of me being sentenced as a political prisoner to me being exonerated is posted online on the Polish government side. I was offered even reparations, but at the time I'm, I was an uh, American citizen and I want nothing to do with <laughs> reparations. I'm, 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 I'm happy where I am right now and... Uh, I don't feel like I need any reparations. <laughs> well, I heard you telling uh, Jocko about, you know, several stories from being in prison. Um, but one thing that really struck me, so so there you are as a young man, your parents are politically divided, you ended up in divorce, then you end up becoming part of the movement against socialism. You find yourself in prison. Um, at the same time, you're kind of learning how to fight, learning how to box. Um, when you were in prison, when you look back now, especially as the tools that you found yourself once you became a SEAL, what what did it do for your your mental strength? Because not only being in prison, finding yourself ultimately in solitary, and then going on hun hunger strikes, those must have taken incredible mental fortitude to see through. Uh, yes and not, because for me at the time, I was so involved in, the, in that movement, and that the part of the prison was anticipated almost. So it's not like I was totally surprised that I, I went to prison. Um, and because I was doing, I was doing boxing and martial art, it helped me in prison. Yes, that's true. But uh, prison uh, makes, made me stronger, made me realize that uh, no matter what these socialist goons are doing, um, they're not going to change my mind. And, uh, with this mindset, uh, uh, that prison time was more like an experience. I would say even because I was young, I didn't have any family. It was more like adventure. as something that uh, I, I was learning like in the school. There's new things, new skills I need to learn to survive there. And uh, of course, I did. That. What helped me a lot is the martial art and the training and, and boxing. So um, there's quite a few cases that I had to help myself to, to, 
to <laughs> to employ uh, my skills to defend myself and put put people in place that uh, that I wanted to be. So, yeah, uh, it was painful at the times, and especially with the uh, prison guards, I didn't get along, and um, <laughs> I didn't get along. Actually, uh, I still have it uh, in my possession the letter they sent to my mother complaining that my behavior in prison is very negative because I don't listen to prison guards and uh, they need some help. So they asked your mom <laughs> so, for help? <laughs> yes. Yes. So uh, because I didn't have any family, just my mother. So my mother came, she was crying, but she showed me the letter and she was laughing at the same time. I said, keep doing what you are doing. You're doing well. <laughs> and uh, I, I do have this letter in America. I do have it. I took it with me. So. I kind of think it's funny. Now, what you said about martial arts, um, which arts were you studying and, and at what age? Well, I started, to, actually, I started with boxing, just regular boxing. And I was really good at it. Um, even the, like I say, I didn't have a father. So the the trainer, uh, the instructor was coming sometimes to my home. And when I got sick and helping me out just to get to the sickness, to go back into the, into the, into the training. I switched to Karate Kyokushinkai uh, when I was living in Zelonagura. This is a small city, a Green Hill, I think you translated, Green Hill in Poland. So I started Karate Kyokushinkai. Then I moved, uh, since my mother was by herself, we were living far away from any of families. There's nobody there. My father moved to Warsaw, so just my mother, me, and two, two siblings. So we moved, uh, eventually moved to Lodz, the second. I think it's the second biggest city in Poland now. Um, and then I switched from Karate Kyokushinkai to Taekwondo and I stay with stay with it. Um, of course, now when I joined the SEAL teams and I met Jaco, of course, I switched. I'm a big believer in Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's something I'm, I, I think I know for years now and nobody can change my mind. It could be better fighting system than that. So... <laughs> Uh, as a Jacko's influence, <laughs> we serve together. And uh, I, the, 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 talking about Jacko, this is the, 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 the only guy I know showed up in the SEAL platoon saying, okay, guys, like, you, 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 I'm going to choke every entire platoon within like five, six minutes. And he did. Uh, well, except those who run away, there's a couple of SEALs. <laughs> so we'll just like, edge way out slowly and move, move out of the room. But yeah, we all, we all got chucked out, uh, including ourselves. But it was a great experience because then it showed us how effective this fighting style is. And um, and actually me, uh, my teammate, Rob O'Neill, uh, we got really deep into it. We really started doing it, all, working a lot to the point that when we showed up in the, uh, 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 in the Middle East, I was choking out like 270 pounds big, guys <laughs> that was like so easy but uh, it was again the, it, it took it took a while yeah so that's the little story with Jacko <laughs> uh, I served under his command uh, with his platoon uh, in Middle East uh, this time where we um, I, maybe I shouldn't say hijacked but we did we hijacked the Russian tanker Volgonift it was VBSS uh, uh, vessel uh, uh, vessel boarding and sergeant seizure uh, a type of operation. So uh, we basically took over the Russian tanker with smuggling oil. Uh, so yeah, it was with Jagos platoon. <laughs> Very cool. 
Right, right. And, um, Robert O'Neill, he was part of the uh, Bin Laden raid. Have I got that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm very proud of him. He was always, he always had that, uh, I have to say, that the knack to be a really good operator. He was a really good operator, and I think that's what pushed him farther and farther. He went so farther away than I did in SEAL teams. He ended up in SEAL Team 6 and eventually ended up on the ride, on the raid on the Bin Laden, and he is the one who killed Bin Laden. So, um, yeah, uh, shout out to my brother, Rob O'Neill, great guy. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the funny thing is, like so many more prom prominent SEALs, they become like a little bit isolated. It's like it's hard to get in touch with them uh, because they feel like they are famous uh, and uh, not with this guy. <laughs> I, I mean, we can call, I mean, anybody from us can call Rob and he will, if he doesn't answer the phone, he will call you right back. So uh, with all this fame, with all this, uh, you know, being so good operator, he's still just a regular guy, just like any of us. Uh, it's, it's good to know it. Absolutely. Well, just going back to the jujitsu for a second, because I, I did martial arts most of my life, and I, uh -huh. I did taekwondo, I did uh, Shotokan karate, so a kind of similar oh, thing. Yeah, I'm familiar with Shotokan karate. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Kyokushinkai is definitely a harder style. I mean, those that makes you a strong, strong yeah. athlete. Um, but but for me, every time I went to a new art, and usually a, a higher combat art, higher contact, excuse me, you know, I got my ass kicked and got very humbled and, and you know, went back down again. With you being a good boxer, and then a, you know, a good striker with your your you know your kicks as well. What was that like with all that training? It was and, awesome. And the only thing is, the problem was that we ran out of the opposition in in the city lots. So we didn't have the place to uh, uh, to fight because they didn't want nobody want to let us in to their dojo to fight because we usually beat them up. And uh, with with the, that was when I was doing taekwondo. So we all had that time had the white belts, but you know, remember our skills were pretty high because we were working and doing martial arts and me also boxing uh, for 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 years. So the white belts white belts showing up in the, the Shotokan dojo or Kyokushinkai dojo and beating everybody up, including instructor in the black belt, was not really going well. So usually we were that the those usually when they knew you know that's in the city that the clubs were very fairly small and then we knew each other so they if we are coming the doors were locked we we're not allowed to <laughs> get in. we had to actually travel to uh the the and we did uh, to the uh the biggest center of taekwondo in poland at the time in uh, lublin and uh, we beat up the black belts there and uh, they were good it was not that easy to do so but we still were i think that what we did was very impressive and um that was pretty much end of our travels because we were not accepted. And then the other, the, the word spread around the Poland that we travel and beat people up. And, uh, that was not so, I didn't see it as that bad, but as I guess it was, uh, they refused to fight with us at the time. We didn't mess with Kyokushinkai because these guys were hard. Too. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, those guys were, can fight. <laughs> they were looking for a fight as well. And, well, we did fight very often, but uh, there, was, there was a good fight. <laughs> so with you having all that success, though, and then fast forward, you're in the U.S., you're, you're you know, in a dojo with, uh, um, with Jocko. What was that like to realize that all the skills that you had, because I had the same thing, that someone half your size with the knowledge of jiu-jitsu could basically nullify pretty much everything that you had that was, was very surprising i tell you that that um especially you know jacko was big so that when we were rolling the, the first time when he was choking the entire platoon 
that was um, uh, that that was not really that was not a surprise, and especially when you seen like, how it is how easy it was done. So, uh, but I would like to go back for a second when I uh, came to America, and uh, I came to Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and this is where I settled down. And first, I wanted to go and join the best dojo in the in the country. I think so. I find out there was a, a, a karate where Elvis Presley was studying. Was uh, it Kempo? Hawaiian Kempo? I don't know. What it wasn't it was. Hawaiian Kempo. I think it was straight Kempo. I believe American Kempo. Yes. Yeah. yeah, there was something. I show up in that school, you know, with his the Elvis Presley pictures everywhere on the wall and stuff. So I'm, I, I wanted to so impress these owners of the school, the instructors. So um, they gave me a white belt. So I asked to find the black belt. They said, well, you know, we we just, uh, um, you, there is too much dis- difference between your skills and the black belts. We just give you blue belt. So I beat up the blue belt, and then uh, so I had the chance to fight with the black belt. I knocked the black belt out, and I was told I'm not welcome. So basically, I was told to go away, and uh, I couldn't find anything uh, then. Um, but with the coming back to Jacko and the, the revelations that, uh, that the years of training I did can be nullified in so easy way so very quickly, um, that was uh, something that I took deep to my heart and uh, really wanted to excel in jiu-jitsu. And that was, again, jiu-jitsu to me is more like a chess game. You still have to know stand-up fighting. You still have to know boxing and kickboxing. But the jiu-jitsu, if you are good at it, you can actually, like you say earlier, nullify a lot of that uh, skills from stand-up uh, fights. And um, I remember... When I was learning it, because Jack would pair us very often with different, uh, uh, I mean, with different people every time we fought with somebody else. And I remember I had a, an officer who was a good, really good wrestler. And uh, I was big, I was heavy at the time, so I just pinned him down. And I spent I think, 30 minutes ripping his arm off because I didn't know how to do it. I guess I knew how to do it. I, I knew what to do. I just didn't know the small details. And Jacko was just laughing there. He was just saying, okay, keep doing, keep. So I'm trying to put the arm bar. I have this guy in the arm bar, but he's not tapping out. He's just laughing and he's still lunging at me and trying to get out. So I guess finally I tired him out. I almost tore his shoulder out of his body. And 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 then eventually he did tap out. So Jack was laughing very hard. He just came out and said, hey, look, what you were doing was okay, but it was not how it is done. That's what you need to do is just flatten out his arm and pull it down. And I show you, he showed it to me. It was like, oh, I was, I was tapping out with like five seconds. And the, 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 the officer, great officer, I didn't like him. Uh, so then he, he looked at me and said, yeah, that's what you should do. You didn't do it. So I was, I was trying to still win the fight. Uh, eventually, I ran out of strength and I ran out of the, uh, and it was too painful. But you were not applying the technique. You were just ripping my arm off. And uh, so this uh, this is how technical it is. It is very technical, and just need to know and to learn those techniques well. If you don't, that become ineffective, or not as effective as they should. So that yeah, <laughs> I, I learned a lot, and I, I really, for me, I have like very nostalgic memories from that platoon with Jacko because we learned so much 
And there were so many good people, Rabonio, Jaco, uh, and uh, we have a great officers. I'm not bringing their name up because I don't have permission uh, to. Uh, I, I I usually is my habit. I don't if I don't if I don't ask and I didn't have a chance to ask them to bring their names up. I just don't bring their names up, but they know who they are. So yes, then. Uh, I was very lucky in SEAL teams because every platoon I was with people, I always learned something. Like in my one of my platoons that we deployed to Yugoslavia, to Sarajevo, I met one of the strongest, physically strongest guy uh, in the teams, I think. I, I talked to him, and I can bring his name. His name is Chris Stroop. Uh, he eventually moved out of the SEAL teams to become a pilot. And I think now he flies for the private uh, uh, company for somebody. But uh, he was uh, that guy when we went <laughs> when we went to France to work with the Hubert Commando. These commandos, they, those French commandos, were like very small, tiny guys. They look more like the the, the tunnel rats than commandos. But they, apparently they were commandos. But when we went up there, Chris put like five plates on each side of forty-five pounds. I think it was at twenty kilos because they didn't have a pounds. Uh, five plates on each side, pick that bar, the bar bent, that the, the weights were start falling off. And uh, that was the last time this Huber commander were working with us from then on after Chris bent their bar, lifting up uh, those weights. Uh, they, uh, they were just, when we rolled in their gym, they were just all sitting out like a bunch of gay guys sitting and looking at, the, at us and just staring. They just did not participate anymore in our workouts and i remember in sarajevo <laughs> one of the uh, i think it was the that not that i think it was from the norway one of the norwegian officers uh, who they were also with us in sarajevo uh asked chris and uh, another guy so why we are so big can we even run <laughs> i remember chris's answer Yep, we can run, but we don't because we don't run from enemies. We chase them. We, we The only way we run is when we chase the enemies. But uh, I think that's kind of like you. We don't run away. <laughs> that was enough. They never ask us why we are so big. Um, actually, that was one of the meetings we had to attend as the SEAL platoon. So as we were walking in, uh, uh, one of the female officers Look, one of our one of our guys and Chris and walk up to our officer and quietly say, "Hey, sir, uh, can you can tell your people they they don't have to wear body armor in this meeting?" As I said, they don't. <laughs> they just so big. <laughs> she thought that we are wearing body armor. That was one was a Chris, another was a Chuch. I don't bring his name because again, I don't have the permission. But we call him Chuch. That's a great guy. Um, so they look at them and say, yeah, they don't have to wear body armor here. But So I became very strong up there. I was like, you know, 180 pounds, 185 pounds. So uh, at that, that platoon, we say, okay, we're going to get as many people over 200 pounds as possible. And I remember I was tittering at like 199 pounds, uh, 199 pounds, 198 pounds. I couldn't get over these 200 I was getting so mad. I remember I went on the scale. I said, this time I had to hit 200. It was 299.99, whatever. So I'm not still not 200. So I couldn't join this 200 club. So I remember, I, well, I look at the children's troop and say, Chris, give me that loaf of bread up there. As I was standing on the way, I was munching that bread 
uh, drinking with water and <laughs> until I hit that one two hundred point zero zero point one pounds. So I was welcoming the two hundred pound club, and then you know it was, uh, that the weight was my weight stabilized around two hundred ten two hundred twenty pounds. Um, uh, unlike now that when I try to lose that those pounds because <laughs> <laughs> it's different now. Also, yeah, of course, getting older now and that is not that uh, it's not that desirable desirable to, to to carry all that weight. But yeah, so uh, that was a great you know like working with Jack and the Jiu Jitsu, working with uh, with Chris Trub and other guys on the weightlifting and being strong and the. Uh, every single platoon you know there there were people that i would like to bring their names up again but i would have to talk to them first and with many i kind of lost contact a little bit but uh, i would like to bring their names into it because they may may have a big influence on me Uh, and uh, but uh, talking about seal teams the biggest influence on me as a seal was chief life p Uh, I, i cannot tell his name because i don't have his permission he knows who he is I remember through my entire SEAL plateau, SEAL career, this is the man, this is the chief I tried to emulate. Not very successfully. I, I fell short of this guy. He was incredible. This is the, 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 the chief Leif, I will call him, is the hardest man I think in the world I ever met. And he trained us our platoon in the way that even training cadre was was alarmed. I remember we were in Alaska. Uh, no, we were in Minnesota on the ranges uh, doing the winter warfare uh, platoon, the winter warfare movements and the uh, and, sh- and shootings. So that was the winter warfare, land warfare. And uh, uh, Chief decided, Chief Life decided that we are not going to go to the barracks, just waste of time to travel a few miles back and forth. We will stay on the ranges. So there's winter. It's so cold that you take your gloves off for like five minutes. Your hands are hands are frozen, solid frozen. So, so we we stay in the BP bags and sleeping bags. We stay on the ranges. We cook our own meals. We had our own meals in the backpack. We travel with it. We go to different places to set up our camps or our um, uh, places where we stay. And we slept on the range. We just get up in the morning, pack our stuff, move to the range, and start shooting. So even my training cadre came back. Say one time, say, guys, you look like from the Holocaust. You, you, I mean, you guys look so bad. We can, we cannot allow that. You need to go back sleep in the barracks because it seems like you're getting too, you look too rough. Uh, well, uh, so they said, Chief Light, you need to take your platoon back to the barracks. Uh, he said, no. Uh, so they, they actually tried to go over the chiefs and say, who wants to go to the sleep to the barracks? Uh, because we will allow you to go back to the barracks. Nobody, <laughs> actually somebody shut up from behind. Shut up. We weren't going anywhere. We're staying with chief. <laughs> there was hardcore platoon. That was with, uh, with Chris uh, Strube, with, with other guys. Yeah, that was uh, winter warfare. One of the last at the time, for a long time, uh, winter and Arctic warfare platoon at uh, SEAL Team 2. So, yeah, that was a great, great platoon. Uh, my first platoon, I remember uh, there's another guy, one of the hardest guys I ever met, Bill Jarvis. I can say his name um, because uh, I learned so much from him. And I, there's another guy I tried to emulate too. Um, uh, he was hard. He's still hardcore uh, as he was before. 
Uh, so shout out to Bill somewhere, uh, wherever Bill is. So um, great guy. I learned a lot from him and I still admire this guy. Beautiful. Well, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit because we ended up at the SEAL team. So what I want to <laughs> do is your immigration story. I mean, it's very different than mine. You know, I, I, I left a country that was doing well. And it's funny, actually, I saw in one of the the, the stories on you that, that you used to listen to the BBC as your news source when you were in Poland, which yes. I think is, you know, that I was raised on that. So I think I was raised with a good, not perfect, but a very good kind of news system, a very good um, uh, philosophy, even though the way that we elect our government, I think, is as bad as it is here. <laughs> but overall, the people, I think, are very free over there, too. So tell me about, you know, you get out of prison. What's your journey like? You know, what, what makes you decide to try and move to the U.S.? And then talk, talk to me about that journey itself. Well, in Poland, and not only in Poland, this is around the world. The United States is the beacon of freedom. It is something where people are looking up to. And I remember even before going to prison, I'm looking at America or whenever I was in Warsaw going through uh, by the uh, U.S. Embassy in Warsaw. I look at this gr awesome cars up there, awesome. There was a, a glass, uh, uh, like a tablet, uh, where you can see the pictures, information about life in America. And I say, this is so great. Why something like this cannot happen in Poland? Why, why, why Poland is not like America? And, uh, and that that always was like a desire. And not only me, but all my friends, we used to talk, we used to read whatever we could find about America and say, hey, this is what they do. This is how it is. The, the, the music was like my, from the West, not only from America, but from the West was banned by the, uh, the, the socialist regime. So we couldn't listen or we could listen to only very few uh, legally. So we were tuning up to foreign station to listen. Uh, but I also started tuning up to BBC and to Voice of America. Good God, you know, it happens that I'm living next to the Voice of America radio station, uh, close to that station now. So, um, but at that time, that was punishable. I could go to, I could be separated from my family, placed in orphanage, or my mom could go to prison if they caught us listening to Voice of America or BB, Radio BBC. And I remember I loved to listen to it because there was something that I never knew. I was learning about the Polish history that was so suppressed in communist socialist Poland at the time. So my mom was panicking. She was like, okay, get under the pillows, not enough pillows, more pillows, more blankets. Some, some, because we were living in apartments. So the walls were not very thick and you don't know who is living next door to you. Uh, you knew the neighbors, but you didn't know if they are snitching, if they are there working for the, uh, the secret police. So I remember my mom was like very monitoring if, can, if anything can be heard from under the pile of pillows and blankets when I was listening, letting you listen, but she was curious too. So then she was asking what I, what I learned, what I listened to it. So that was very, uh, that was even before, uh, before uh, I went to prison uh, as a political prisoner for opposing socialism. But uh, they, they had a big influence on, on me, my mother, my family too. Um, so eventually, after uh, leaving the prison, that was not that just, well, you left the prison, go, go stay on your own. That we were still closely monitored by secret police. 
there were times that I were coming back from fights or from the from club, uh, the, the taekwondo club that I was practicing taekwondo at the time, and the police, uh, police, there was a civilian car with police inside, secret police was pulling in, pulling, dragging me inside the car, handcuffing me and driving me around the city. I remember initially, I was like, I was really scared. I was like, where are you driving me? I said, well, when we get there, there nothing will matter for you anymore. So I was thinking, what well, the bastards are going to kill me now? And it was nothing unusual at the time in Poland. People were disappearing. Uh, people who opposed socialist regime, they were either suicided, they would find killed, or and uh, the perpetrator was never found, or they just disappeared. So yeah, I was I was afraid. But after two three rides like this, I was just like getting a bit more accustomed to it. All I had always in my mind that like I have now no chance to survive. So at least I would try to kill as many of these bastards as possible, the, the secret police, as, and, and I would try to do it by any means. So um, I had a plan, you know, what to do if they pull me out in the woods that, somewhere and uh, that I would just sit in and let them slaughter me. So, um, yeah, and eventually it became so um, so scary that I went to, uh, to U.S. Embassy to ask for help. I went to U.S. Embassy because, again, for me, that was the only place where I could be safe, where I could, uh, where I felt safe asking for help. So when I went to his embassy, they listened to me. They uh, they asked for uh, documents and papers, which uh, I provided them. And uh, seems like at that time was very quick because I believe within three months I had the, for me it was like emergency visa. I get a, a promise uh, from, in Poland they call it promisa. It's almost like the, 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 uh, that uh, uh, guarantee visa, immigration visa to the United States. Oh God, I celebrated <laughs> for an entire week after I got that. But then I had to go and comply with the, the, the Polish regulations to, to leave perma Poland permanently. So first I need to go to, I had to go, remember, I had to go to the military uh, station, to the army station and uh, get uh, uh, make sure that I'm not wanted for anything for, or, or I'm not wanted to serve in the military. I remember I went to that station and there was one of the sergeants sitting up there and uh, really pissed off and mean guy. Uh, he looked at me, so you are, you're leaving Poland, you should be serving in Polish army under this Polish eagle. And he pointed out to the eagle above his head. So I look at it and say that I say you are an idiot. That guy, I told the sergeant, you are an idiot. That guy, that guy up there hanging over your head, he's not even Polish. That thing is not even Polish eagle. It doesn't have a crown because the communists and socialists like you stole that crown and sent it to Siberia. So, but I tell you this: when this crown comes back, and this uh, and the real eagle. Polish eagle with the crown comes back. People like you will go to jail and prison for, for treason. Well, I didn't think it will happen, but actually it did happen. There's many of these people who were supporting socialism. They were actually, they eventually they went to prison for treason for, uh, for uh, a lot of judges sentencing opposition to death or prison times were uh, accounted for, had to account for their actions. They call it in the post-socialist Poland, uh, judicial murders, and many of them were sentenced. If they didn't escape, they were uh, arrested, and I think maybe some of them are still sitting in prison for judicial murders for sentencing uh, uh, innocent people to death or to prison time 
for opposing socialism. So the times change and nobody at that time, I never thought it would be impossible. I just said it off of cuff to this guy because he pissed me off. But, um, but uh, uh, eventually uh, it came true. Uh, actually, that actually that, that that incident is well described in one of the uh, books written by Polish commando, Polish uh, grom guy, and that book is available in English on Amazon. It is called Camp Posi. Uh, camp Posi was the camp in Iraq, in near Baghdad, where we Navy SEALs operated from with. Uh, Polish special forces grow. So we became kind of friends and uh, because we, there are so many hundreds of missions that we did together, supporting each other, uh, had a great, uh, I mean, that, that built a lot of friendship. So in one of these, his books, uh, this uh, commando, uh, Polish commando describes that incident uh, within the Polish military station where I had to go to and talk to. So yeah, that's uh, the name of that book is Camp Posi. It is on Amazon. Beautiful. So you get your visa. Tell me what it's like coming from the socialism that you've been fighting pretty much your whole life. You know, where did you land and, and what were those first days like for you? Well, the first time we came to New York, and that was really awesome experience. I remember that, you know, that I only experienced it twice. One time coming back from war, and one time coming, and the first time coming, escaping from socialist Poland at the time. Um, it was kind of a thing of relief. And I didn't realize how stressed out I was, how how much fear that there was in Poland until I landed in America. I just look around and I like tell myself, they can't get me now. I'm safe. I'm in America. So that was, that was such a great feeling. I remember when I came uh, eventually to my final destination, to Memphis, Tennessee, um, I was living with a family older family just for initially to kind of get used to it, get um, uh, uh, to know a little bit the environment. Um, so that was uh, until I got my own apartment. But also before coming to America, I spent time in uh, Germany, in, uh, in West Germany. That time the Germany was still divided. So it was in West Germany. I think it was, if I remember, Bad Zonen. Um, so that place uh, was run by American government. And this is where we start learning about America, about the laws, about the, uh, you know, the customs, uh, how to live, what, how to make best out of living in America. And I remember the only thing we were asked for was please respect our laws and please respect our customs. It's nothing else. Just, just please stand and please live as a free man. Please uh, live as you as you like. This is the time that I remember. I told myself, I will be the best American citizen America can have. And um, yep, I'm still still think the same way and still trying to be the best citizen and be the best uh, uh, citizen America can have. Now, with, again, you having, you know, so little freedom comparatively, 
what were some of the first things that struck you with with the freedom that we have here um you know was when you were in america abundance of everything i remember i was t- 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 telling on jacko's podcast i went to the store i mean i was taken to the store uh to buy some groceries and good God, I remember in Poland at the time, you just grab whatever it was from the shelf. If there was anything on the shelf, and well, even if it was just a window cleaner, because you can trade it for something else. Here I walk in, I see like everything. And it's not just everything is there. There are hundreds of everything there. So I remember it became my habit later. It's just I, like people sometimes go to the art museums, I was going to grocery stores. I was like looking at all this abundance of food, of everything. And I was just admiring that I say, God, God, look, I can buy this. I can buy that. I remember my first grocery trip. I didn't know what the cereal was. I'll just pick one of the boxes because it looks really colorful, so great. Um, and I look at it and say, what's this? Uh, so these people told me that this is uh, the cereal you eat it, you can eat it with milk, how you can, whatever. But this is what it is. But then I'll go, what's this? Same cereal. This is just a different package and different manufacturer. What's this? The same thing. So I remember I loaded my basket with like hundred, I think, of those cereals. <laughs> Whatever I could buy, because I wanted to try every one of them. Uh, uh meat that was, was not available in Poland. Please remember when I left Poland, the food was rationed. You had ration cards. That's how socialism war. Eventually, this is how it deteriorates to the, the, the food become rationing eventually to the point that people raise up and, and remove socialists or hang them from the Lateran posts. But um, that's how it was. Uh, so when I show up I, uh, in the grocery store, I see the meat hanging here, uh, that meat, this meat, that meat, this kind of meat. Some of them I never ate in, the, in my life. So now, there's experience that you cannot describe. There is not enough words. But this is America. We have everything. We can be whatever we are able to be because this America is free. It's a free country where people are free. So this is my hope, too, that even now we are under assault from socialism. Uh, people, that the American culture is built on freedom on personal freedom and people will not allow to get into yoke of socialism to be to to, to live under socialist boot and uh, they will resist it and uh, that's uh, that's uh, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, socialism uh, uh, and the perversion of socialism will not uh, succeed in America and, uh, and besides whatever it was tried it failed it cost thousands, if not millions, of uh, uh, lives. Uh, I mean, the, around the world, I think this in Soviet Union itself, I think they estimate around 60 million people perished in that socialism up there. Yeah, no, it's horrendous. Now, one one thing that I had a a much smaller contrast because I came from a country that wasn't oppressed, you know. Of um, course, yeah. But again, yeah. was the abundance, and, and and there was just so much to be grateful for. There is it in England too. I mean, I, I just went home and it's a beautiful country. But one thing that has struck me, especially traveling, seeing places that are, you know, affluent, seeing places that are very desperate, is there seems to be a lack of gratitude at the moment as well. Is that something coming from so little yourself when you see the abundance here and yet you hear a lot of the complaining, a lot of the... Um, 
you know the whining for lack of a better word that 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 maybe people don't realize just how lucky they are in this country i think uh, it could be part but also again uh when i, when I talk to people uh, i try to explain to people who ask me that question uh why you know it seems like there's a lot of ungrateful people they don't really care or they don't know they are not interested in 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 this or why we have so so good here uh but you know what isn't the way it's supposed to be i mean we want our citizens to live life and not to worry about uh, being uh, oppressed or being uh, having a lack of not being able to buy food or, or or so when they don't think about it they concentrate on other things they concentrate how to build the country better how to make the better science how to be better uh, uh, citizens, they don't have to worry about uh, stuff like, well, can I buy the food? Or uh, so when they don't think how great it is to have all these things, tells me that uh, we, the defenders of America and leaders of America, are doing very well. And I would like to keep it this way. I, I, I think this is the great, great compliment uh, to hear that people are not worrying too much about the war or not worrying about being. Um, uh, uh, oppressed because uh, they are not uh, at least not yet <laughs> and uh, unless we give in to socialism otherwise people they're living their own lives worrying about you know how to be good at school how to be great scientists that's what we want we don't want people to to worry about get, <laughs> uh, trying to get food or trying to fight for freedom yeah no it's interesting perspective but i think the only thing that i see is it's very easy to become just a consumer and you lose that that philosophy of I also, as you said, I owe it to this country to to serve. And you did as a Polish man, I did as an Englishman coming here as a firefighter. And I think that's that's the part that I think we can do better. We have such an amazing life here and we do have security and we do have abundance and we do have just a beautiful country. I mean, you know, nature wise, it's gorgeous. Oh, so if we, don't, if we don't remind ourselves, okay, so I have so much what can I do to give back? Can I mentor kids in the community? Can I do something to improve my home, my community, my country? And if we all do that while still enjoying all these liberties, I think that's how we really move the needle. Yes, absolutely. And I think talking to people, um, it, it, it helps a lot too for some, especially the younger ones, to realize how great America is. The, my concern is not about these people who don't, worry about it people who are purposefully trying to denigrate america destroy what we have and that and we 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 know i know and you know that some teachers or there are some professors are teaching how bad oppressive america is how perverted america is and this is something you would expect from adolf hitler of joseph stalin but not from the uh, 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 our citizen or not from our politician denigrating america and uh, and and, and they're trying to destroy what we have so but yeah you're absolutely right i still have to mention my first um first time when i a friend of mine you know i progress so when i came to america i didn't speak english i had only bag of clothes so as i progress i learned english i was getting better and better job again when i came to america i didn't expect to just 
become a manager suddenly and make tons of money, right? I just want to get my regular job, try to learn about the English, about America, and become a good citizen. So as I was doing it, and then more and more opportunities opened to me, and uh, eventually I ended up working as a mechanic for Saab. And uh, one of the lead mechanics uh, there invited me for a steak. I didn't know much what the steak was. I mean, the steak for me was a meat. But when I showed up, I see those three slabs of meat. I didn't see, I didn't eat that much in month in the Poland at the time. So I say, how many people are going to show up? I was thinking like maybe there was like hundred people are showing up to the party. He said, no, just me and you and my girlfriend. So like to those three huge steaks. So I said, I mean, do you mean that I'm going to eat the entire steak for me? This entire piece of meat? So yeah, what's wrong with that? I say, no, nothing, nothing. Absolutely. I'm trying. So that was the first time I ate a full American steak and it tastes so good that I still remember till today that, uh, yeah, I didn't have to share it with anybody. In Poland, I would just slice it into pieces. I would like maybe hundred people would eat that thing. So uh, here, uh, I, I was eating it by myself. It was all for me. So, uh, so yeah, I still have that, still remember the first time I ate that American steak uh, uh, with my uh, uh, friend from work. Um, and actually, I owe him a lot too. You know, like when, uh, when I was looking for a better job, eventually, I was moving from, you know, I started with from uh, being a janitor and cleaning in the church. And it was great, you know, no, there's no job is a bad job. But, you know, as I was progressing with my English, with my understanding of America, I was getting better and better job. So my next job was also in the uh, car dealership as a parts helper. So my job was answer the phones, get the numbers, and then go pull that part out from the shelves and bring it to the gate where uh, somebody would show up and pick it up and uh, either to the, uh, to the, part store or for to another dealership. My problem was that my English was still not that good. So when I was listening five, five, six, seven, F three, four, nine, I missed the digit or I missed that misspelled something. So I pulled the wrong part. And quite often happens that the person came in, picked the part up and call or pissed off. So well, I got the wrong part. You gave me not the part that I asked for. And uh, so they didn't know what to do with me. So, but I was working so hard that it just they didn't want to fire me just outright. So they say, um, well, there is an opening right now in the Audi Saab Porsche dealership. They're looking for a mechanic. Do you know anything about cars? Of course, I know about European cars, everything. I didn't even, I never even owned the car in my life. So, <laughs> but I have so, an accent, uh, so there you go. <laughs> right. So, so, but then, so I, I went to the interview up there and they, they asked uh, the Porsche mechanic, the Porsche, uh, Porsche foreman showed up. It's like, man, I don't speak English. I don't need him. The, then the, those uh, Audi mechanic showed up, say, well, yeah, I don't have much with him because he doesn't, doesn't speak English very well and uh, he doesn't, I don't know how much he knows about the cars. So now we're waiting for sub mechanic and you can hear a big heavy howling just rolling into the hall up there next door. Oh, hey, Jim is here, Jimbo is here. So just hang on for a while. And this big guy rolls in, he looks at me. I was like, God damn, this guy's going to eat me or something. And uh, so that's Jimbo, this is the guy, you know, he's applying for the job. Would you have a use for him in the, with the sub or something that um, it's just look at me. Yeah, you know, I need a slave, roll him in. Um, he works. He will work for me. <laughs> That's how I started. I didn't <laughs> think about it. So I owe this guy so much. James Moore, his name. 
um, he he told me everything about cars, and I became a really good mechanic. Eventually, I ended up working for uh, Mercedes as a technician. I went to I went to I was doing well. Jim was teaching me well, so we uh, uh, eventually they sent me to Saab school. I became Saab certified technician. Eventually, I moved to Mercedes. But yeah, this guy was <laughs> something else. He was a great guy, and again, I owe him a, a lot. And uh, uh, yeah, beautiful. Well, so you went from janitor all the way through to mechanic on imported cars. At what point did you decide you wanted to enter the military? And also tell me what age, because I know it wasn't eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, I was at the time thirty-one years old. I'll come going thirty-two. The first. Persian war broke out at the time. So we were, uh, America was at war. And um, I was, uh, I decided to be a good citizen and support my country. This is a war. I can't build the jobs because I don't have the skills. For, I cannot build the jobs for other people because I don't have the uh, resources to do so. But I can support America in, in, in other way, uh, like fighting war for America. So I decided to go join America. I was skydiving. It's a funny story because I was skydiving at the time. I was actually teaching skydiving at the time. I was skydiving AFF uh, jump master. So um, I told all my uh, skydiving buddies that uh, because we're living together as roommates. Uh, and one day they came out. I said, all my bags are packed. Everything is ready to go. And I say, where are you going? They called me Geronimo at the time because my name was Geron. So, so well, it's easier to have to say Geronimo, the desire, or whatever they have you spell that name. So, where are you going, Geronimo? I said, I'm going to war, brother. I'm going to war. There is a war right now. And, uh, you know, I think we all need to support America. So, I decided to join the military. So, how did you join the military? Uh, well, I went up there. I feel this. There's a, I didn't know how to do it. So, but I seen the post office very often, uh, in the, almost every post office, the selective uh, enlistment uh, card or selective. Uh, I forgot so it's what a selective the service. Have I got that right? Selective, yeah, selective yeah. service card that you register yourself. So, but I thought that when I fill my name, I send it over and I'm going to war. <laughs> it's like a month later, I'm sitting on my bags. Uh, retired man just going skydiving on the weekends and the, the answer came in like well I'm too old for uh, I don't need to fill this card this part, this card is only for young kids in the high schools I guess to fill it up to register with the, with the service but uh, really that's, that's not the enlistment so um, <laughs> I know those, those some of my friends were laughing very hard but they said look this is not how you join the military to go to the talk to recruiting the best. So that's what I did. I went first thing I went to the army. For me at that time, I didn't know the distinctions between army, navy, and marines. For me, it was military, it was army. So I went to army office and say, Hey, look, um, this is who I am. Uh, I want to join military, I want to join army, and uh, this is why I want to join the army. So they were pretty excited and say, Yeah, okay, awesome. You know, let's start working on your paperwork. So I start completing my paperwork, my medicals, some, I think some other stuff of it, like uh, a pretty thick, uh, plic, uh, I mean, stack of papers. Yeah. Like the application process? Yeah, application, all the processing paperwork and the, uh, everything there. 
And it was after I became a U.S. citizen at the same time, too. So actually, I remember something funny about it because I was American citizen. I still have an old green card. So when I showed them old green card, they say, well, I say, oh, wow, wow. And I showed them, hey, look at this code. Look at this code. Yeah, yeah, we can, we can get you in the military. I guess it was something without being the political prisoner or being the opponents of socialism. I don't know what the code was on that green card, but it was something that got them interested. But at the same time, again, I was skydiving on the weekends, Navy SEALs showed up, the leapfrogs. They were doing a demonstrational jump in Memphis at the time, and they would come to our drops on to skydive. So I had a, time, a good time jumping with them, and I talked to them. I'm joining Army. And uh, so I saw they're like, hey, no, uh, hold on for a second. Why don't you join the Navy? I say, I, I can join the Navy. I just don't know what the difference is. Do we do that at the post office? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they say, well, what the difference is that, you know, in the Army, this, this is, they describe the Army to me, and they say, this is, this is the Navy. So this is what we, um, and then they told me about what they do. I say, okay, well, yeah, I want to join the Navy then. So they go and go the next door to the Navy recruiter and talk to them and ask them about Navy SEALs. So I went to the, to the recruiters, I, I talked to them, I kind of liked what they had to, to say, but then I said, well, uh, so I'm sitting with, I'm having with these, I was you know, skydiving with these guys. They told me to ask about Navy SEALs, if I can join Navy SEALs. I really don't know what it is, but they say to say it. This guy's looking at me and say, oh, okay. Yeah, we can make you an ABC. I'll just sign it right here. <laughs> I say, okay. Um, so how do you make me an ABC? I say, well, once you sign it, or they will put you in the SEAL training and you become the naval, uh, naval commando. I say, okay, sounds good. But then they look and say, well, but you know, not so quick because you are too old. You actually are almost too old to qualify for the military, but you can still, we can still get you uh, into the military just for the Navy SEALs, the diver, they, they call it diver program at the time, not the diver, diver program. And we cannot get you in this program because you are way too old. The cut of ages, I believe is like 27 or 28 or 27. So you are 32 almost now. So you can't, uh, we can get you in it, but, if you sign this here, this contract, and you go in, they will make you Navy SEAL. I say, sure, okay. <laughs> so I did sign it. The only thing they, uh, um, the, the, the SEALs told me, just go get the job. I didn't know what they were talking about at that time, but say, before you enlist, don't enlist, don't, and don't enlist as just like an undesignated guy, just enlist and ask for the job. So I did, and they said, well, okay, well, we have all these jobs. Which one do you want to do in the Navy? So I looked at the list, but I really didn't understand much of what this was. Uh, they tried to explain it to me. I mean, they, they, they were great guys, tried to help me as much as they could. But then they said, well, you, you are jumping skydiving. Uh, what about the being parachute rigger? I was like, parachute rigger? Yeah, I can do that. That's something I mean. So they look into it, but say, okay, now, the, because the school starts like in two weeks or three weeks, we already have your paperwork done. So what you need to do is, if you want to go, get that school we will we need to ship you out uh, uh we need to ship you out pretty much next week i mean the on monday i think or sunday you will be gone um because you know it's two months of the boot camp and then the the, the schedule for the uh, for the uh, a school when it starts i had to leave very quickly so i said sure no problem um uh so i signed the paperwork they told me okay so on friday 
you will show up and we will swear you in to dab the, the, I think the, the delay enlisted program. And on Saturday, I think on, on or on Sunday, I don't remember the, the date exactly, you will leave to boot camp. I said, sure, no problem. Say like, oh, really? Okay, he signed it up. So I signed, I called my girlfriend and said, hey, we need to get married. I'm leaving. <laughs> Next, uh, I'm leaving on the weekend. I'm going to uh, to military. So it's like, what? What did you say? I said, well, I'm going to get married. We are leaving. So uh, we just run up to find the judge, or judge of peace. And I think we get through all the paperwork. We signed, we get, became married. I went on Friday being sworn. And then uh, on the weekend, I left. So for two two months boot camp, and again there was nothing, no not nowhere, nothing said to, that I would be a seal. <laughs> of course, uh, in the boot camp though, there was a special day we had that different uh, jobs. There were the representatives from different jobs were coming and uh, talking about the, their jobs. Uh, one of them was like there was a EOD guy, there was a seal was the uh, sergeant rescue. And um, I remember I said, yeah, I want to be a SEAL. My ASFAB was high enough to be a SEAL. So uh, when, they, when they came in, I just couldn't wait to raise my hand, say, yeah, yeah I, I want to go with you. I want to be there. And um, so uh, volunteer, I passed the test. It was kind of, the, the swim was the most difficult part because uh, I could swim, but I just could swim on one side and I couldn't swim with the mask. But uh, I did pass the test and I was ready to go. I was pretty excited until I get a kidney stone. <laughs> they say, well, now um, we might have to roll you back in the boot camp to different companies. So you graduate a month later. Uh, so I really didn't like that idea. And luckily I was able to pass the kidney stone and uh, went back to the company, to my company. And, uh, and I graduated on time. Uh, but then going through medical uh, before graduation in boot camp and during the medical screening, they, I passed everything except they noticed I had a kidney stone. They told me I have to wait at least a year uh, until I, after I pass the kidney stone before I can apply even. So they basically that shut it down. But no, that, that didn't really, for me, it was okay. I mean, I, uh, I wanted to serve America, whether if I was a parachute rigger or a be a seer or uh, you know any other capacity for me it was a proud thing to do and for me it was something that i feel felt morally obligated to do for america so i say okay it's no problem so uh, i've graduated from my boot camp went to a school to get my job to be a parachute rigger and as i was progressing uh, oh by the way i graduated from boot camp as a top recruit from this entire graduating bunch uh, I was the top recruit in the number one. I got the military excellence award. So I was doing great. And uh, in the in the A school, um, I remember those petty officer Barrios. Uh, rest in peace, brother. Uh, but anyway, so he uh, he was the motivator there, uh, the Navy SEAL motivator. So I went to him and I was progressing through my A school. I was doing there very well. Uh, I went to him, to his office, and I asked him to help me out. I want to be a SEAL. I want to join a SEAL. I want to get to the SEAL training. But this is my problem. I had a kidney stone. I passed all the tests. Uh, but they say I have to wait for a year or maybe even two. 
And he looked at me and said, yeah, you know, if you, get, if you don't get out now and get in the SEAL training, once you get your job, that will keep you for at least three years to get a return on what you learn here at school. So, yeah, we need to do something now. Let's go start with the test. So I had to take the test again. I did pass the test. Uh, he said, okay, now go, I want to go get you more your medical record and um, let me go take a look at the kidney stone thing. So I went to the office and there was no electronic paperwork. So there was everything was in the little uh, paper fo folder. So I brought this folder, the medical folder to him and then just like opened up. Yeah, this right here. He said, no, don't, don't, don't worry about it. Just step outside for a second. I'm, I'll call you when I need you. Uh, and so as soon as I step in, I could hear. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, uh, says, come on in, come on back. So I come in and say, what kidney stone are you talking about? I'm looking through this paperwork and I really don't see anything about your kidney stone. I say, oh, it's right. Oh, you know what? Maybe I just didn't remember well. Yeah, I think you, you, you just got confused. I say, I think so. Yes, but if your body is, uh, I think I got confused. I don't remember anything about kidney stone anymore. So yeah, okay, well, I don't know anything about your kidney stone. You pass the test, let me see the paperwork. Hopefully you will get orders. And um, so all my class, after graduating from uh, from A school as a parachute rigger, PR, uh, great profession, but I, again, I was not, it was very hard to progress. It had to be really good to progress in this uh, on this job. But anyway, so I was waiting for my orders. And like a month later, the orders came in, that yes, I was accepted into SEAL training. And I will leave, uh, at that time it was already the next year, so I was only 33 years old. So I just packed my stuff and, uh, uh, and uh, drove to Coronado and started my new life. And there were so many, <laughs> I remember misconception. I thought that going to school training would be like a prison camp. So basically we'll be all like that, we'll not go outside, we'll be just indoctrinated and we'll be just uh, training the all day, seven days a week until we graduated six months later. Uh, that, that was my perception. So I was very surprised when I showed up. And it's like, well, you know, this like a, you train hard, but after the, the training, the day, training day is over, you can do whatever you want to do. So um, I was like, holy smoke, so I can go on time? Yeah, you can go on time. Basically, they give you enough rope so you can hang yourself on it. If you, if you are uncareful uh, during the training, uh, if you use too much of that fun stuff, eventually you will deteriorate your, and you will not progress as fast as they expect you to and you will fall out. Uh, I couldn't go a party because I was too old and that, that, that day, after the day of training, I was so beat up in my age that I was looking at these young guys. I was like jealous sometimes saying, well, you know, I wish I was that young. I can go because they were like after the day is over, I just jump on their motorcycles, their cars, or their girlfriends were coming pick them up. They were going to bar and drinking all night, coming back next day and doing as well as, as, as they, they never, never nothing happened. I tried it a couple of times, but the next day I was so beat up, I was almost half, 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 half conscious after I was done. So I was trying to stay away from some of the heavy partying. But I was still partying with the guys and. Uh, uh, I kind of liked it. So, yeah, that was my uh, six months training. And I tell you that the training at the time for me was just, you showed up, get kicking the balls. It's like a blur. You showed up and then just come out and say, whoa, you're done. Uh, but when I returned in 2005 for my last tour of duty as a SEAL instructor, SEAL instructor to BATS, then it down on me how 
uh, hard the training is. And, and, and again, it, I mean, a lot of respect for the people going through this training. I didn't realize how hard it is until I start working and administering some of those, uh, uh, some of the training to the new people coming into SEAL teams, uh, going through the SEAL training in BATS. So, yeah, I give you a totally different uh, uh, vantage point on the, after you see that misery, that the hardship that I have to go through it, which when you were going through it, you didn't think much about it. It was just like, this got to be done, it's got to be done. So, uh, I did it, we did it. But um, after you start uh, training these people, seeing that some of these met some of the methods how it works and why it works i guess i gave you a, a, a gain a lot of respect uh that, that it gives you a lot of admiration for these people undergoing their training absolutely well you mentioned sarajevo earlier was that your first deployment overseas uh, no, that was not my first deployment. It was one of the deployments. Okay, so what was that like? Because I mean, we'll talk about Iraq in a moment, but um, you know, you up to this point haven't been a combatant. I mean, you've been in prison as a as a political prisoner. You you've immigrated to the U.S. Um, and now you're back in you know Eastern Europe again, and you're seeing these atrocities between you know people from the same country. So what was that like through a, you know a Polish man's eyes? Uh, I was American at the time. Oh, I'm sorry, American. Not, Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I know what you're trying to say. Say from my how it was from my vantage point, who somebody who experienced socialism. Uh, of course, for me there was nothing surprising. The, the poverty, the atrocities, the hate, uh, uh, and the division in society. It was something like you know, I lived through it. I've seen it, but it was a big eye opener for my teammates. Who never experienced socialism before so there was like why does this happen you know why they hate each other so much or why does this so uh, that they're so poor why there is nothing you can buy there or, or or things like that so i remember sometimes i had to explain to them that how socialism really works and eventually how it uh, deteriorates to the point that what we see in yugoslavia and again uh, the, the every country that socialism uh, was tried, failed, uh, still lingers in Cuba, and now the Venezuela, one of the richest countries, South America, became the most impoverished country through socialism in South America, where food, shortage of food, medicine, and anything, and, and the, the hatred between people, the division in society, is uh, what's going on there. But otherwise, um, yeah, the socialism failed everywhere it was tried. The problem with it, it fails, okay, but the, the problem is that it costs millions of uh, dead people. Now, with with that, again, so you've you've been in Yugoslavia, you've spent a lot of time in Iraq, um, you know, your, your own perspective of, of being in Poland. One thing that, through my very naive, non-military eyes, seems to be is whether you're talking about some of these dictatorships whether you're talking about slavery you know so many of these things that have you know the colonization that, that the uk did all over the world is usually it's very few people gaining at the expense of the masses of a country were you seeing any kind of common denominators in some of the places that you were deployed or even poland that that ultimately it was it was the few greedy you know power greedy financially greedy profiteering off the masses 
Well, this is how socialism works. Usually they end up with very few people, that 1% that benefits from it. And those are the 1% that actually administers the socialism and, <laughs> and, and other atrocities. And the 99% of the masses that either go along with it and, uh, and uh, kind of uh, benefit some of it, but most of the people end up impoverished and uh, angry, hungry, <laughs> and uh, and in really bad shape. So uh, uh, and, uh, and living in fear. So that's uh, that's that's pretty common. You know, there's a, the, the, whatever socialism it is, whether it is Adolf Hitler socialism or Joseph Stalin socialism or any other socialism, they have a few things in common. One of them is violence. Uh, another thing is uh, the attack is attack on uh, faith. Faith is very incompatible with uh, socialism because socialism needs immoral people. So uh, faith uh, kind of helps you to stay, keep your morals, stay on the good side. That's what socialism does not want. They want corrupt individual who can actually blackmail or terrorize into things. So the more corrupt you are, the, the better for socialism suited you are. And uh, so uh, attack on, on our faith, I remember in Poland, attack on family values. Uh, and, and again, the, the socialist goons unleashed on society. So there was not necessarily secret police just working people over and beating people up or terrorizing them. There were groups of these pioneers or, or, or even uh, they, whatever they wanted to call themselves groups that they were um, officially illegal, but uh, or not quite legal, but the, the, the government never knew what they were doing. There was never government fault that people get beat up or terrorized. There was always, well, it was that group up there. That group is not that dangerous, not so bad. Oh, so oh, wh why are you complaining about it? That was previously the ask, the, what the, the socialist government was asking. Those are good people. They may be misguided a little bit. So never mind, they just beat up your children or terrorize you and your family. It's just they are still good people. You know, you need to look at the good side of these socialist goons and um, and that goes through almost every socialist state whether this is soviet union uh, at the time uh, socialist poland at the time socialist czechoslovakia or socialist east germany uh that th those groups operated everywhere and they were usually unleashed by the socialist party uh on on, on society and they helped to uh uh to quiet down or uh, squash some of the uh, uh, opposition where socialist party didn't want to get directly involved. So they unleashed their goons. These, uh, these uh, like, I call them little Nazis, running around and beating people up, terrorizing society. And please remember the socialism has a lot of uh, uh, power where uh, they can, if they cannot attack you or they don't want to attack you, they will attack your family. They will, you find your kids getting beat up or kids disappearing for two, three days. And then you, you are scared and eventually they, they just want to, to submit you into, they know you don't like them. They don't care if you like them. They just want submission so you don't cause problems to them. So this is how socialism works. Uh, and that, uh, how socialism works in Poland. Please don't, um, um, don't confuse that with Scandinavian Carter. They said they have nothing to do with socialism. That's not the socialism uh, there. And, you um, said the Scandinavian countries? 
Scandinavian country. Yeah, yeah. Country, I think I find the word socialism, even even with England, they call it socialized medicine, the NHS. There's nothing socialized about taking care of your, your men and women. That's yeah, just everyone doing their part. That's not socialism. And as far as the socialist medicine goes, apparently that's not... Uh, not the solution. It's not a really good solution. You can see in Canada, people are coming here for the get real treatment, coming to America to get real treatment if they need it to. And uh, it was always inefficient, just like in Poland, where we also, there was that uh, that socialized medicine, where uh, people eventually were rationed medicine. Like my mom couldn't get some medicine because she was too old. They say we don't have enough of it, so we need to ration it to younger people who are productive part of the society. You are just all persons, so you just do whatever you can, and uh, but we can help you. And you know, if you see on these boats uh, from from Cuba running away from the socialist socialist uh, socialized medicine, makes you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, is it the NHS? I mean, I think that's personally the best healthcare system that there is when properly funded. And that's the the problem. I mean, I my granddad, I told, told this story a few times on here, he was 99 years old. He was riddled with cancer. He had paid the private healthcare system as well. They had a thing called Bupa in England. And they basically priced them out. When they got to a certain age, they couldn't even afford their premiums. They were absolutely insane. Um, and when he finally was diagnosed with cancer, I saw the best care I've ever seen on planet Earth. They had Doctors, you know, visit in his home, nurses visit his home, hospice. They moved a hospital bed into the house. When he finally passed, they visited my grandmother for about two weeks after. So that's national health. So it always kind of, you know, pisses me off when people call that socialized medicine because that's a completely different standalone system that doesn't exist anywhere else on planet Earth where we pay into it. And then and, and when it's when it's done correctly, which it isn't at the moment, then the whole point would then be to be proactive and use preventative measures to stop your nation getting sick in the first place, therefore not using the taxpayers' money. So the system, the philosophy, I think, is beautiful. And, and when it was first stood up, it but, was very effective. Yes, but, but. Sure, but you know, so is the socialist idea. Socialism is beautiful too, and it really sounds great when you read about it. And But when it comes to execution of it, that's, uh, you know, you, you, you see the results. Uh, another thing too, what I'm totally opposes uh, forcing people to buy insurance when they don't want or they don't need insurance. That's, uh, uh, you know, if they can force you to buy uh, from the government uh, the insurance, what else they can force you to do? I mean, they can force you to buy what? They can force you to get, to be forced vaccinated. They can force you to do anything else. Socialist government is dangerous because they can do whatever they want to do and you have no recourse to it. So if that socialized medicine is limping there, you can't say anything about it because they will kill you or, 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 or that, that you won't get any medicine or any medical help at all. That's my experience with uh, the, the socialized medicine that people were dying in, in masses in Poland. They couldn't get medicine. Uh, that you, were going, you were going to see a doctor only in emergency unless uh, when you were dying. Otherwise, you, you had to work because you just had no, otherwise you had no food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and that's why I think, you know, the NHS, the English system, should not be called socialized medicine. It isn't socialized medicine. Should it's not, a completely, yeah. completely yeah. different system. Yep. Well, I want to walk through... You know what, again, if this is implemented the right way, that the medical, the, 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 the medical insurance implemented the right way, 
is, is, is something that will work great, especially here in America where not everybody needs uh, cookie cutter insurance. Like I don't need maybe insurance for this and for that. I just need a specific insurance. Young people, they might, they, they might not like insurance for, for this or for that, or I don't want to pay for, uh, for abortions and stuff like this. So, so, you know, I, I think what, what happened in America was, was perverted. It was the perverted version of, uh, of, uh, and it was not so much about trying to help people. It was more about the controlling people. Because once you control uh, uh, me, me, the, the medical uh, healthcare, once you control the healthcare, you control the people too. Absolutely. Well, um, I want to kind of move forward. You, you talked a lot about your deployments with Jocko, a fellow SEAL. So. Um, you ended up serving, you know, all over the world, uh, you know, a lot of time in Iraq. Um, so talk to me about what made you decide to finally transition out. And let's talk about that process, because there's a lot of people I know. I mean, you've got a pretty, you know, I'd say traumatic childhood, you know, on, on the scale with, with what you went through with your parents' divorce, with the socialism you grew up amongst, the you know, the prison, the time that you spent. Um, and then you add on you know, being a, um, a seal for, for many, many years. So what made you actually, you know, pull the trigger on, on transitioning out? And then what was that like for you being removed from your tribe, finding yourself back in the civilian world? So I served 20 years in US Navy and my time for retirement came up and uh, I took it. Um, the only thing I would like to make uh, digressions on, uh, yeah, the, the, the childhood maybe was traumatizing. and I didn't see it this way. You know, I didn't see myself even as a poor guy, uh, as a poor person. I, I remember I had, uh, the, the way I look at my uh, uh, childhood was pretty happy. My mom provided as much as she could and uh, uh, we had always our needs met. Maybe not always we had a food on the table but uh, or warm clothes. But we, our our needs were always met, and if we, you know, like if I didn't have a. By the way, let me just go back for a second to these school years when I was growing up. I, I learned very quickly that, uh, and I experienced that, if your family or one of the parents was had ties to the ruling socialist elite class, then your life was very easy. You had a lot. You have pretty much almost everything. Uh, you you could you wanted to have as a kid. And uh, I learned very quickly about it. And I seen this nice, awesome breakfast sandwiches they were bringing to school. So I remember one time, it was like the second day, my mom didn't make it on time to uh, to the store. She was waiting till, from four o'clock. By the time seven o'clock came in, uh, the, by the May to the end of the line, there was no food. So so I was, I was hungry for like second day. I said like, well, Here's a big sandwich. I just went to went to the guy and say, "Look, you're gonna split the sandwich with me." He said, "No," so I split it for him. So he got a half, and I got a half. But then I realized that, well, he's rich. His parents are the party members, uh, belong to socialist party, so we can bring more food. So I told him next time, so tomorrow, if you want to eat your sandwich, you bring two. If you bring one, you'll be hungry. You won't be eating. That's my sandwich. <laughs> so, well, he didn't react to it. He brought just one sandwich that I ate. So next time, um, of course, I also explained it offhand to him why I'm eating his sandwich. And um, then uh, with the black guy, next day he brought two sandwiches. So, he, well, from then on, I didn't have to worry about being hungry. I, basically, I was uh, 
eating of the uh, social elites table. And uh, it was not so bad. No matter of fact, I know that some other kids in my class were hungry too. So I kind of started distributing. You know, we just we we gathered together and said like, who's who is that party kid uh, belongs? Whose parents belong to the socialist party? And we kind of target them. So like, so now on, you bring you and you and you and you gonna bring two sandwiches. If you don't bring two sandwiches, you won't eat. So pretty much entire class was uh, feeding. We were feeding ourselves from the socialist <laughs> elite kids. I help, you know, but this is what socialism does. You know, it perverts people. Was it good? No. Was it moral? No. But I was hungry at the time. I was a kid. And uh, it sounds like a good idea to get the, get socialists and the uh, science. They have everything to, to bring us a food too. So that worked. But anyway, so... Uh, I retired after 20 years, and for me, it was kind of stressful. I was married at the time. I got married just maybe not too long before retirement. And uh, my wife, she's very smart. Uh, she's uh, She has a master's in bioengineering. She's uh, working on her PhD now. So uh, I, she kind of told me, and she demanded that I would go and apply for the job. <laughs> I said, look, I don't have any skills. And that's the problem with Navy SEALs. Not many, or maybe there's part, some of the SEALs who are so uh, dedicated that they don't look outside and the time, 20 years or 25, maybe 30 years for some comes in and the only skills they have is the SEAL skills. And the SEAL skills do not translate well in civilian uh, uh, job demand. Uh, well, what you could do, you could do con keep contracting, but you know how long you're gonna do that, uh, doing running the contracts, or eventually become um, I don't know Kmart guard uh, or the Walmart guard somewhere there. That's that's what you can we can do well, but that's not what I think most of us want to do. So some people have a hard time translating their seal skills into civilian uh, jobs. That's that's what I didn't realize at the time so much because as with my wife advice, I applied for the job and I got the job. I got the job before you know, I retired from the Navy as a, a, a programmer, a, a computer programmer, so a, a software engineer. So, so for me, it was kind of easy transition. The problem though was with... Uh, that I had was with drinking. And I didn't know, but now by, by, by any standard, I was alcoholic. I just didn't know I was al alcoholic. I was functioning well in society. I just had to drink. And uh, I was in the evening at night, so like, who cares? <laughs> My wife did. So for me, that was, uh, I think that was the, the monster that I had to beat yet at the time when I retired from the Navy. Otherwise, the transition was for me somewhat painless because the skills that I acquire on the side while being a SEAL helped me with the transition, helped me get the job that is in demand. So um, I'm, I'm not really worrying about job security because the skills that I have, I think, provide that security for me. Now, I asked Ryan, Ryan Parrott, um, I told him, hey, I'm going to be speaking to Drago. Is there anything that I should ask you 
that maybe wouldn't be readily available on the internet. And he said, ask what kind of woman marries a Drago? Meaning, you know, <laughs> so tell me about Rachel. Tell me about, you know, um, where, what she is to you. And I'm assuming she helped you through that transition and get to where you are now. Okay. Yes. He said, this is the entire story too. Because, <laughs> uh, I met Rachel when I was a new seal. I met her first time when, uh, as a new seal, I was going through HAPS training, the high altitude uh, pressure chamber where uh, we learn how to react and how to recognize if we have a problem with oxygen before we jump uh, with the parachute. So um, that she was, uh, she's Air Force Academy graduate. So she was at the time an officer and she was running that program for Air Force on the Air Force base where we, where my SEAL platoon went there. Actually, I went there because some some, some of the team guys coming back say, hey, there is a chick up there. That is, she's she's awesome, she's beautiful. So, uh, well, let's see who, if somebody gets lucky. <laughs> so I said, well, hell yeah, try that. So we showed up up there and she was a consummate professional. There was no chance in the hell. <laughs> but it is the first time I met her. And um, she remembered me from, um, well, so if you are in this chamber, your pressure goes uh, down. It gets depressurized to the uh, to the uh, to the same level at high like at high altitude, and uh, to teach you how you can recognize these the, the symptoms. You take your masks for a second, and and you know you at least I was incapacitated in a very short time, but other guys can watch it. So usually the way it goes is you are in the chamber. There's, of course, all the safety measures are taken. There's medical personnel and everything. So Rachel was in the chamber, too. And it was asked, the SEAL platoon, my SEAL platoon, who is going to be the guy who is going to be the experiment to show others how the high altitude works. So like everybody look at me, point the finger, that guy, I was a new guy. So there's a meet, FNG fucking new guy. So so they say like all these other guys, yeah, that guy, the new guy. So of course, you know, I say, I, I, I take the mask and I took the mask off. And of course, I'm starting slowly seeing the black spots in front of my eyes. But at the same time, I was asked to write my name, to put like the square pegs in the square hole, the round peg in the round hole in the little ball, plastic ball, like the child's game. So as you deplete the oxygen and uh, you're becoming more and more incapacitated, that uh, doesn't work very well. So they start laughing at me and uh, apparently I started threatening to kill every one of them and start cussing there, <laughs> became very belligerent. And this is one of the symptoms. My, my wife said, uh, she was not my wife at the time, but. She said that one of the symptoms is belligerency, but it's very seldom. It doesn't show up every time. So never, they never experienced it until I showed up. So so I was try, trying to kill everybody in the chamber. They were laughing at me. And of course, they I passed out. So they put the mask on me. I came to myself. Everybody's laughing. I don't know why they're laughing. So we don't. Uh, we left. And then, you know, I went through my SEAL platoons. I went through to deployments. I went through the war. And when I came back from war, I became SEAL instructor. And while being instructor, I'm, I'm just looking at it, thinking like, look, I'm thinking, I have no family. I have no skill, other skills but SEAL skills. So, and I'm about to leave the gate of the Navy forever. And what 
become of me. I'm, I'm, I don't want to be loved on society. So, um, so I said, I need to find a girl. I need to find a wife. And I didn't know how to do it, but I start, started looking on the, online. And there was a site, American Singles, at the time. And uh, so, of course, but I don't speak English that well. And I definitely, I can't write very well. So my biggest concern was if I write to some girl, and eventually that, that even if I like her, that she, she will be scared or she won't want to talk to me. So I employ my SEAL team guys, uh, my teammates, to write love letters uh, for me. Because I met her, I went to her. Uh, of course, I, I kind of like cheated on my uh, age a little bit because she was so young. But I really, really like her. She was so beautiful. So she is beautiful. So um, so I, I, I went to her. Eventually, she went back to me. And she wrote something funny. I said, I need to write. So I want to write her back. I didn't know. So I just ran up to the to 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 to, to, uh, to Bats where we train seals because there were some seals up there always. I said, dude, you need to help me. You need to help me. You need to write me a love letter. You need to write me a letter to this girl. So this is how it started. So the team guys started writing love letters for me. And I was uh, and I was just sending them off. And uh, so whenever she wrote back, I just ran up to my teammates and say, hey, okay, this is what she wrote. Okay, write it back. So they were writing it back. And it was going on. It was going on awesome. I mean, she loved my letters and she liked what I wrote and she liked me apparently. And it was going on for a while, but the, I was, we were thinking about like meeting each other or start talking to each other over the phone. So there was maybe like two months already into it, maybe three months uh, before we decide to contact each other. But before that, finally my teammates got tired uh, of writing love letters, say, Drago, you just, uh, we wrote you like hundreds of these love letters. All you can do right now is just copy and paste. So whatever she writes, you can make some of that, uh, of this copy and paste to you, to whatever will suit you. And, you know, it's grammatically correct and everything is right. So you're going to do it, you'll be fine. So I say, well, kind of hesitant, but I say, okay, I, I do that. So she wrote, she wrote me back in one of my letters written by the seal. So I just go and try to copy and paste. And I think, look at this. Yeah, I think it looks really good. So I send it off. It's like not even like two hours later, I think her profile disappears. It's like, what the hell happened? just happened. <laughs> so I just run up to my team guys and say to my teammates and say, hey, uh, dude, I think I screwed something up. I, I sent her that email like you told me copy and paste. So they look at it and say, holy shit, Drago, you... You, you fucked up. <laughs> Sorry for my words, but, uh, but you sound like somebody on drugs. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's not good, man. That's not good. So I'm in despair. They kind of like feel sad for me. But then a few days later, her profile popped up again. Well, at that time, I didn't know why. But um, they, basically, they, she was called by, she canceled her profile after my my letter that I wrote myself, or she would copy and paste. Uh, so when she canceled her account, they actually offered her 30 more days for free for the bad experience. She had. <laughs> 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 so, so she said, okay, I'll try it. So she said, I'll, she will try it again. And I went to her profile pop up. I kind of like, I don't know what I did, but finally she agreed to give me a last chance to give me a call. So when she called, um, I, I answered the phone and there was hair. So I started talking to her, trying to explain to her. I said, like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So, okay, 
I'm getting it now. That's what she said. I'm getting it now. You are not drunk and you are not on drugs. You just don't speak English. You're just Polish. That's okay. <laughs> We're so we Polish. It, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's saved my thing. So then we eventually decided, you know, we start talking about the phone and she eventually decided to visit me in Coronado in California. And I remember I had a, had a bad experience from dating girls online because usually they show up not the way that they, 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 they describe themselves, not the, the, the pictures that were so beautiful pictures turn out to be then not them, but some really like bad looking girl. So not, not nice looking girl, I would say. So when so I had this bad experience, but I said, I'll give it a try because she sounds so good. Says the pictures are awesome. Then you send me. I don't think she lies, but just in case. So I bought the flower and I put it in my Jeep and I left it on the seat because I said, I don't want to stay in the flower and some uh, kind of like not, not, not nice girl shows up. So I put in the Jeep and I had my swim buddy with me, another seal. Um, just in case I need to bail out because that because if, if you know if the girl was lying to me, I really didn't want to talk to her. So um so I had the seal with me and then I was just we bought he looked at the pictures, I look at the pictures. He looks at up the stairs and she was start getting on the elevator on the escalator the stairs, going down and said, like, hey, I think that's her. I say, Holy shit, that's her, and that's she really looks like in the picture. But he looks like this, hey Draco, he, She's way young. Did you rob the cattle or something? I say, no, dude. I, I just lie about my age and you wrote the love letters, fuck. So <laughs> he's just like, hey, you are you on your own, brother. You got it. She's the she's the good one. So he 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 took off. And I remember I was so scared. She was, yeah, she was a beautiful girl. She always like thought she was. And uh, so I was trying to be gentleman. I said, well, no hugs, no nothing. I would just like be very cool. So I woke up to her and so I stick my hand up, say, hey, I am Drago. Very nice to meet you. She just look at me and she see the, the sparkle. I say, hey, Drago, I didn't come here 2,000 miles just to shake your hand. Give me a hug. <laughs> oh, shit, I melted. And uh, so, yeah, I give her a hug. I took her to the car. I was so shit scared, scared so shitless scared. That when we woke up, I opened the door, I had this flower laying around. It was still rubbing the papers. You can even see this flower. It's like a bunch of paper, something rubbing the paper. But I was so that I was so stressed out, so scared. I grabbed this thing and I was like, upside down. I hand it to her and say, I have a flower for you. And she looked at me, that's the flower. Hold on a second. So she gave it back to me, flipped it upside down. She took the paper off. Okay, she gave me the, the, the flower. The right way is okay. Now hand it to me. So say, <laughs> okay, that's the the flower for you. <laughs> and, uh, so the, this is how it started, and then you know just rolled in. Um, we we uh, we got married, and uh, we are still married. We have two kids now, and uh, uh, twelve years old and eleven years old. So beautiful. I'm <laughs> I, so glad I, I asked that question. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. She, she domesticated me. I mean, she, definitely she domesticated me. Yeah, that's funny. I met my wife on Match.com, so the same kind of thing. And I can <laughs> totally understand what you're saying. I guess it's a term catfish. I, don't, I never quite got that bad, but, you know. Did you get a bad Because I really got a two, I had a two experiences there, both really bad. I can even tell you about one if you have a second. Yes. Because this is something that's what really skewed me for the, uh, and really scared me. This is why I had a swim buddy with, with me when Rachel showed up. So, so we're dating online, right? We are writing to each other. And again, I have a team guys writing the love letter. So, uh, so it's kind of, is working. Eventually, I could, we, she was from San Diego too. So we decided we're going to meet, we're going to meet in the Starbucks. 
the, the Starbucks, the, the shipping that was like the, it was in San Diego somewhere where there's like a lot of offices around and shipping up around the lunchtime. So I said, okay, I showed up at the lunchtime. I drove my Jeep up there and uh, showed up and, and like maybe 10 minutes later, I took a book with me just to look more smart. And uh, like I was reading, the, pretending I'm reading the book. And that time, like all these girls, these beautiful girls start rolling in from the from these offices around at Starbucks. So every time the girl comes to the door, I say, this got to be her. And so I'm just getting, you know, as big as I can. I'm just reading the book and pretending I'm paying no attention. And, and none of these beautiful girls was that girl. And then... I remember just like big shadows showed up. Just like I, even I took my eyes from the book and I see this is somebody so big that has to go sideways through the door. And I was like, no, that's, cannot, that's not her. So I didn't pay attention to it. But the shadows come closer and closer and closer. It's kind of like hovers on me. I look up, say, you must be Drago. I was like, holy shit. I say, Yes. <laughs> She said, yeah, you are so beautiful. You are so awesome. And I look back to the side and all these girls, these beautiful girls, they're just laughing. They are laughing loud. And it's like almost like a, she basically make a scene. And I just don't know what to do. I said, okay, have a seat. And I, I tried to turn it. I didn't know what to do at the time. So I was trying to turn it into like a, a business meeting. <laughs> so I said, so, okay. Okay, so tell me how many, how many, People work in your place. She's like, look at me. Are you crazy? I didn't come here to talk about my work. I came here for the date. I was like, oh, my shit. I'm done. <laughs> so I still trying to be nice, you know. So I, I talked to her for a while. And it was like, uh, these people just laughing. I, I could hear them laughing. So eventually we end up this uh, date. And as we walked to the car, uh, to, uh, of, the, of the Starbucks. She said, hey, can you give me a ride? I park on the other side of the mall here. So uh, can you give me a ride in your car? I said, yeah, I have a Jeep. Yeah, no problem. So as we walked to my Jeep, I opened the door. She can't get into the Jeep. I mean, she she's too big. And she's trying to, she actually grabbed her leg with her hands, tried to put it into my Jeep. They, they grabbed the chair, like, you know, like you, you grab the tree and try to climb climbing it and that don't work she looked at me say well i walk i say okay can you walk me i say well i'm in the hurry i'm so i'm in the hurry to go back to work and uh and uh, uh but you know it's not far so you came here you can walk back and um and she left and i left i said good god i never do it again now was was did she have a picture that looked completely different then? Oh yeah, there was yeah. different girl. Yeah, she see, that's, somebody's that's all, somebody's classic catfishing. Then. And <laughs> I look at those pictures. I say, "Wow, this girl is a hammer. She's uh, awesome." I mean, yeah, if I can uh, get connected with her, I think I have a wife. Oh, good God! I mean, that. Uh, so this is why I had my teammate with me. I said, "If something like this happens again, you know, he's going to get brunt of it. I will run." <laughs> but uh, but no, no, Rachel Schumann, Rachel was who she was, and she, she was, and she is beautiful. I'm uh, totally in love with her, uh, and I fell in love at the time, and that didn't change. Beautiful, love it. Yeah, like I said, I can relate. I met my wife after a series of. If you see the, some of the comedy movies where they go on all those dates, and they're all you know, yeah, not yeah. good. Uh, that was kind of you know, there was some great people I, I met as well, but. 
I was very uh, gun shy by the time I met my wife, and we went on the first date and basically lived together ever since. So yeah, I mean, for everyone out there who's given up, don't give up. <laughs> they're, they're out there. You just need to be <laughs> oh, patient. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it paid off, and uh, again, I still owe a lot to my teammates who helped me write those letters. If they didn't write those love letters for me, I think I don't think I would be where I am right now because. Uh, Rachel is very strict, like uh, on grammar, on she got used to me t- talking the way I talk now. But, uh, but uh, she's uh, like very, she's a very proper girl, and uh, of course, like I say, well educated. And uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that would never happen in not my teammates. I owe to America so much. <laughs> I owe to your team so much too. Beautiful. That's a hell of a story. Now, I just want to want to get onto one more area, and then we'll go to connecting. Um, you mentioned about leaning into to alcohol, like a lot of us do, um, especially when we transition out. Um, and then you touched before we start recording on on um, the ibogaine treatment that I hear a lot of the seals that come on here have had great success with. So, what was that journey from, you know, realizing that you did have an issue with alcohol and 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 finding a solution to that? Well, I didn't realize, my wife did realize very quickly, and she was trying to push me there uh, to uh, all kinds of treatments. There's more to it, just the alcohol, because uh, my job in SEAL teams, uh, I was a breacher. So we have, I have hundreds of these explosions, maybe five, 10 feet, from five, eight, 10 feet away. And that's have a, 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 some effect. And a very bad, a very bad effect on human bodies. Uh, matter of fact, I think Naval Special Warfare uh, a few years ago came up with the uh, with the findings that most of the TBI, PTSD, TBI injuries in SEAL teams happen the breaching uh, course, the, the the breaching training course, and uh, of course, yeah. But again, so that's not that's the, nothing compared to the real combat. So, um, so yeah, that's, I think they had something. So my wife was from the very beginning looking to get some treatment and, uh, I tried two different things that didn't work. Um, uh, that's, uh, but I was also very resistant as I, I, I tell her, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. She sent me to Texas. There was a center, which uh, really that didn't do anything to me there, but, um, so I went there. I landed in Texas, in in in, uh, um, in Dallas, and I called her back. I said, "Look, get me a ticket back. I'm not going to this crap. I'm not. I'm. I'm nothing is wrong with me. I was like total denied. You know. It, it, let me go back into SEAL teams for a second too, because you know, like when we go on those missions, we get all wrecked by the explosions. We get all. Um, we are in the same situation. We are in the same thing. So." When we come back, when I came back, I just look at my teammates. Hey, some people tell me that I'm crazy and I'm, I'm something is wrong with me. Is something wrong with me? Said, no, Drago, you're normal. You're just like me. <laughs> yeah, I was like because exactly. we both were fucked up. <laughs> so, so that, so this is how uh, 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 that that self assurance comes from fellow teammate who is actually in the same position and don't see these changes. Then those changes, uh, the TBI uh, changes are mostly seen by uh, by the families and the friends initially because they don't see us the way they see us. We live for six months or it was almost a year for me. I came back and then um, 
And then they see me again. They say, oh, something is wrong with you, dude. You're not normal. Uh, but you don't believe that. You feel normal. And uh, your teammates tell you that you are normal. You're just like them. You look, yeah, you are. I am like them. So, so yeah. So when I landed in Dallas, uh, I said, like, nothing is wrong with me. Buy me a ticket back and I am not going there. So she finally said, like, look, I fought for so long time for you to go there. If you come back, if I buy you the ticket, you come back, I won't be here and the kids won't be here. So I said, though for a while, so uh, shit, okay. All right, I'm going in. So I went up there, it didn't help me. So what I learned from that is there's different, the, the, the same injury, but it could be different treatments that will help the guy. So for what worked for me may not work for you. What worked for you may not work for me. I learned that. So some of the treatment that I went through worked for some people, but didn't work for me. So I was not any better until I got uh, uh, contacted by my fellow teammate. And uh, he said, look, what you need to do is try abogain treatment. I said, what is that? Well, this is the psychedelics. And uh, there is an organization that does that, that will send you to this, not legal in the United States, but you'll go to Mexico, get the treatment. And uh, I have to tell you, that was life-changing event for me. And the organization that does that is Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, VETS Incorporated. It's run by uh, uh, Amber and Marcus Capone. And uh, I owe them my life, I would say, with this. But there's two things, too. There's uh, this Abogain that was life-changing, but I'm also under the care of Kevin Lutz and Dr. LeMay. Uh, so they make sure that my hormones are balanced, that my health in general stays the way it should stay. And uh, so there's like a two, two prong attacks. One is that very radical with, uh, with the abogaine treatment that you come back different person. And I actually, I did, you know, after this treatment, it, it was like a, from the horror movie that for me, at least for me, some people have a great experiences for me. If you've seen the poltergeist movie, that's, uh, or the, uh, exorcist that's how it was so but anyway i came back and i came back different person i even today always say that uh, i buried the drago in the, in the desert so i came back as a thomas Durand, the drago the seal team drago is buried i buried him in the desert in mexico so uh, I'm, I'm me now um so that was a very radical that was not great but it was extremely scary but it was the experience that changed my life. And again, so this like it for me is a two pronged attack. There's one that the radical change and two, the steady care of Kevin Lutz, my total teammate and uh, Dr. LaMay, uh, who make sure that I stay, my health stay the way it's supposed to be. So uh, I owe them a lot. But the Abogain treatment was something that uh, definitely change I, I, after i came back i stopped drinking it was not like a fight or, or struggle to stop drinking i just stopped drinking oh, why not drink drug i just don't feel like drink i didn't even call myself drago people still call me drago because uh that's how they know me most of the team guys know me that way but uh i'm, I'm not even attached to this drago uh thing anymore it's just i'm using it because it is this is how i'm known um but that that changed when I came back from Mexico. 
uh, can I stop drinking? I stop uh, reacting to some stimuli that before make me angry. I become like a diff different person, more mellow, and I open up uh, more. I'm not uh, before everywhere I went, everything I did, I had always that image of me in my head from Iraq, even if I didn't have a kit and, and guns on me, I still felt like I have it. I still felt that pressure of the body armor on me. I still felt the ballot, still felt the gun and the rifle on my side. And I still felt the helmet on my head. And I was almost like, it made me invisible. It made me uh, uh, indestructible in my mind, of course. And uh, so I was a normal, uh, normal person, but I had this still civilian life. I still had that, that imaginary body armor, imaginary weapons on me and stuff. And didn't think much about it, but just almost like feel you have it, you know? So, so that thing went away. And that, that's changed so profound that I credit my success in life now that for that particular treatment, the change that I underwent. And maybe, you know, like there are some people say after this treatment that they love everybody. They, they, they are so, uh, so mellow. There's, and they, some of them do. They have this they have that big transformation. I had that too, I believe. You know, I'm not the one who I, I love everybody. You know, if I didn't like somebody, I'm most likely I still don't like the person, but at least I don't want to kill the person. So I'm, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm normal, normal human being. And uh, I don't have these, uh, not the flashbacks, but I don't have these, uh, you know, uh, I don't know even how to say it, uh, from the SEAL teams, from the war, when you come back, I think, I'm not worried about protecting myself. I'm not vigilant like I used to be. I'm just, uh, yeah, yeah, just kind of like, um, I'm, I'm very peaceful and I'm, I'm at peace. I'm at uh, having a great life and enjoy, I enjoy the life. And uh, that's, uh, I want to say thank you to Amber and Marcus Capone for that, uh, uh, for, uh, for giving me that the chance on new life. Beautiful. It's so good to hear as well. And it's such a shame that veterans that fought, fought for this country have to go to another country to get this this amazing treatment. That's a whole other podcast. But Well, I know that Marcus Capone and Marcus Number Capone are working right now. Uh, uh, very, They are very active to bring this treatment uh, to mainstream uh, uh, healthcare. And I think they will be successful and I'm supporting them 100%. So uh, I know they are uh, very actively working to bring the street to other veterans. Beautiful. Yeah, well, I need to actually get them on the, the podcast. But I've had, um, like I said, Nick Norris, Jeff Nichols, um, Dan Cirillo, yourself, um, Johnny Walker, the Iraqi interpreter. I mean, so many success stories just with this. And this is, like you said, this is one tool. You know, there's lots of other things that work for people too. But to hear the success over and over and over again, I really do hope that it's brought not only to the SEAL community domestically, but also to everyone else, you know, first responders, it's true. anyone it, else. It used to be, it used to be, there's even university uh, doing research or was doing research on uh, Parkinson's disease and uh, how it uh, can be maybe remediated 
with uh, with abogaine type of treatment. Yeah, and in TBI, I think um, if I'm not mistaken, psilocybin is the only compound that they're actually seeing improvement with TBI too, which is another supposed illegal drug at the moment. So I'm hoping that you know we'll see a lot of that progression in in our healthcare. Yes, I say uh, I say the TBI, not PTSD, because I really uh, I, I'm sure that I know that PTSD is affecting a lot of people. But I think within the SEAL community, because of the selection process, uh, well, I cannot speak for other people, but I can tell you for myself that I haven't seen anything or I didn't experience anything I was not prepared to face. So whether this is uh, you know whatever the images of war are. Um, I'm in peace with it, and I'm peace with what I done there, what I did there. So uh, I'm not saying PTSD. I was talking about TBI, uh, and that's I think you know that treatment and having my hormones in balance. I think are very is very important, and I think that's what keeps me uh, um, healthy and what keeps me uh, active, and uh, and I'm enjoying life. Beautiful. Well, it's so good to hear. I mean, you know, between your successful marriage and, you know, the, this treatment is, is amazing. So moving on to another project. So talk to me about um, your experience with social media platforms and then what pushed you to create your own. Well, I'm just not different than in the communist socialist states of behind the Iron Curtain. We are being censored now. It's been different a little bit different mechanism because if you you have these socialist goons running these platforms and they work hand in hand with socialists in America, in our country, to censor news, to censor your exposure to certain facts and uh, uh, even historical facts. And whatever is convenient for socialism, you can read all, the, all, all you want. But as soon as you start posting anything about so about the real socialism, you get banned. That's what happened to me. I was banned from uh, Facebook. I was banned from Twitter, even LinkedIn. So, um, so I decided to create our, our own social media, social media for everybody, uh, social media for Americans. So it's not uh, there is no censorship. There is we don't have any fact checkers. And as you know, we never had fact checkers in America until the truth started coming out. So we don't have a fact checkers. We don't have uh, 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 censorship. When we, unlike Facebook and uh, Twitter, we don't allow enemies of America to reside on our platform. We don't have mulaks, ayatollahs. We don't have Taliban. We don't have all other America haters on our platform. And these foreigners, these nasty uh, terrorists will the platform un unlike the Facebook and, uh, uh, and, and and Twitter. What a disgrace to America to have this little twerp. It looks like, the, like the, the, the nastiest person in the world banning our president while giving a platform to terrorists and other scourge attacking America. These people, in my opinion, should be in jail, should be in prison for, uh, for, for allowing terrorists to speak on their platforms while banning our legitimately elected president. That's, that's so disgusting to me. And hopefully, just like it happened in socialist countries that fell, eventually, 
that they come to Jesus and they, they will be accounted for their actions one day. Now, with, with connecting that you started, I'm curious, you know, like you said, freedom of speech is very important, but there is there are certain groups that will be just woefully inappropriate on any site, you know, whether it's sexual predators, whether it's, you know, yes. fascists. So how are you able to filter those out with, without, you know, being in, in that kind of censorship right. so realm? Our site name is ConnectZing, Z-I-N-G dot com. ConnectZing.com. There's one word, ConnectZing.com. So I, I don't want to get into details because I, I cannot divulge a lot of the mechanisms that we are using to filter it, but we do have, we do not allow the pornography on it, um, um, at least the, the hardcore pornography. We don't, uh, the, the, some people post their pictures in bikinis and, uh, and, and that, you know, I don't really care. I, I don't do it. My wife wouldn't do it, but if somebody wants to do it, you know, they are free to do so as long as they don't, uh, uh, don't harm other people so uh, so we filter uh, and we filter uh, that the, especially the foreign groups the terrorists that we that like taliban and uh, uh ayatollahs they have no business to be on right this uh, this platform is american platform for americans not for foreigners Brilliant. so it is uh, again it is free that you know we have people who are on the fringe somewhere there you know you think um, well, that's I don't agree with it, but uh, or I think you go too far with your assumptions. But you know, who am I to say that you can't post it? This is your you are an American. If you feel like you want to talk about it, you are welcome to talk about it. And the same thing I was being asked uh, of by our members to remove some of the uh, more controversial liberal people, and I totally disagree with it, you know, whether. You know, when we fought the war, we didn't fight it for Democrats. We didn't fight it for Republicans. We fought it for American people. And whether you, you know, when we fought the war, we didn't care if you are a liberal, Democrat, or Republican. You are an American. That's what we fought for. For whom? So, so same with this platform. You know, whether you are uh, uh, liberal or conservative, you are welcome. And you know, nobody's going to shut you down here. And uh, that's that's uh, that's the beauty of it. This is, is for America. It's for it's free speech. And again, I'm disgusted with Twitter and Facebook. I think those are treasonous platform, and they will do more harm to America than Adolf Hitler could do. And these little uh, Nazis working for uh, it. Those are my opinions, of course. Those little Nazis working Facebook and Twitter, eventually they will be accounted for, and they hopefully they will be put in prison for the for the for, for the their action against America for allowing and enabling our enemies. Now, what are you seeing as well with algorithms? Because whether you're left or right or you know anti-police or you know whatever label you want to slap on your forehead what i see is the machine the social media machine which i use you know it's mine's very very groomed anyone who's a shitbag is just you know removed and that's you know because i just wanted to be positive it's not about left right if you're not a giant right. asshole on my platform you get to stay but right. i do see algorithms dividing people creating tension creating arguments and people that i know that are normal people saying horrible things to each other and i really do feel that kind of 
petrol has been thrown on the fire through some of these algorithms. It, so it, it goes back to what I say earlier: socialism needs uh, need, needs a villain. And how the best way to create a villain is just to divide society, to turn one group on another one. And that's how it worked in the past in socialism. And that's why how it's worked, start working now in America. And this Facebook and uh, uh, Twitter are nothing but the, but the tools of socialist girls who took control of it and uh, they use it against America. So those are anti-American platforms. I'm surprised that... Uh, that uh, People are using it. But what I think what needs to be done is to invest. The conservative uh, side needs to invest in the social media platform so they can have a voice. One of them, those platforms is connecting. And uh, we hear when conservatives can have voice. Also liberals too. Also people with different views on, on our country. We don't censor people. So again, you can find some the very far-fetched opinions, but uh, again, as long as they are not anti-American and uh, not uh, we 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 tolerate it and we we let people decide. If you don't like somebody posting something, you can block that person and you will never see what he is posting there, or you can argue with him or you can uh, uh, post your opinions. So everybody is welcome. That's uh, that it was created for America. So everybody can speak because when you control what people know, what people see, you control the minds, and that's what happened. I mean, look at the uh, uh, look at the Biden's son. What a pervert! Uh, uh, laptop. Now they slowly start admitting, yeah, there is uh, something wrong with this guy. There is something uh, uh, perverted. And uh, we knew it all along. Most of the people knew it all along, but how it was censored on social media, you couldn't hear anything. Talk about the vaccines now. Uh, you know, people can't post anything about the vaccine unless it goes along the Democratic Party line. So uh, so that's uh, that's something that I found very difficult uh, to find information different than what is the, 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 the mantra now. And... Uh, and so on our social media, you can actually find that information that is different from what the Democrats want you to know. And uh, you, you are welcome to post. You know, I don't agree with everything that's being posted on both sides, but that's my opinion. If I don't really like something, I can block the thing and don't see it. And that's how connecting works. Connecting doesn't censor people. People censor themselves. So uh, basically censor other people out of their circle, out of the groups. It's like Facebook. You can create your own groups. You can create your own, uh, 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 you know, different uh, advertisement and different uh, things. But that's again, it's not being censored, and you are, um, you are master of your own destiny, and um, uh, and you basically you create your own, your own speaking platform. Beautiful. So that's connectzing.com. I'll put a link to that on the webpage for this episode when it goes out. So anyone listening, if you didn't catch it, then it'll be there as well. I want to hit just one more topic before we let you go. One second before that, maybe. Please. Uh, again, this is project in. Uh, the, 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 this is still project in working. So we are improving it. So in connecting right now, it's like a Facebook, but we have a free video call, so you can. Uh, have a messenger you can ma message each other or you can 
make a video conference calls and uh, bring the group. We have a chat rooms that we can bring two, three people. The chat rooms can be password protected if you want. And so all these features are for free. We don't badger people with advertisement. And uh, we are working on it to bring some, we are being asked by people, uh, they would like to advertise on our platform. So I'm creating, I'm in process of creating right now that that uh, functionality so people can bring their advertisement into the into collecting. Brilliant. But it is free, everything. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm on there. I haven't actually finished up in a, making the profile yet, but I'm already registered myself. So thank you. I'm intrigued to see. Um, so the very last thing before I let you go, let's talk about the Navy SEAL Foundation. Yes. So that's another thing that is very close to my heart and I think helped me, helped me survive my post-SEAL uh, life, in, in my post-SEAL life. I've seen many uh, SEALs, many team guys leaving the teams, getting in the hard place. Uh, they, I mean, they would, so we created NavySEALsFund.org. It is... 501c3 charity. It is uh, supporting pre-9-11 and post-9-11 SEALs and even those SEALs who got in trouble. That Our uh, idea is if you at any time carried 51, 5326 uh, designation, uh, you are, uh, we, 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 we encompass you. We, you are eligible for help. And uh, what I find out that very often sales, my teammates, they refuse to ask for help. At least it is too late until it is falling apart. And sometimes it, it takes maybe small help just to get somebody over the hump, to get the person pay his bills. And uh, so they can start the, their new life. Uh, they don't get that help because they don't ask or they ask too late. And uh, this is why also we are very, very quick. We are able to respond within three hours of, uh, of, and we did within three hours of uh, the help request. We are very quick, and uh, but also we are very thorough. Our community is small. We are able to verify the needs uh, that quick, and um, and also we are uh, we have a broad uh, charter, so. We can help in many other cases that other charities may not be able to intervene. We were able to, we had a Navy SEAL injured in uh, one of the small islands of Honduras. And um, that was very critical. And he was being removed from hospital because no funds to pay. And um, he was paralyzed. Uh, we were able within 24 hours to get the flight light and get a helicopter there, evacuate him to the United States. And within 24 hours, he was within the VA, in, in VA hospital. So this is one of the cases. I, I cannot bring the names because we are, that's understandable. But that is one of the cases. Many cases where it had to intervene very quickly just to stop the house reposition or, or things. So, so what helped us is when people ask for help a little bit earlier, that we don't have to act that fast. And, uh, but again, this is the seal mentality. I don't need any help until I need that help, but then I need that help yesterday. So uh, that's typical, we, we live with it. Well, the, the Navy SEALs Fund is operated by Navy SEALs. It's, uh, the, the voting rights have only Navy SEALs. The board of directors is, uh, has Navy SEALs. 
only and uh, nobody gets paid. There is no salaries uh, uh, within our charity. So 99 point something percent goes directly to the mission. We don't hold to this money. And uh, if the help is needed, it's being dispatched very quickly, very efficiently. We help not only Navy SEALs, we help their families. We help Gold Star families, Gold Star parents. But we are not limited to Gold Star parents. We help uh, Gold Star siblings and children as well. Beautiful. Well, I'll put the link to, to the fund on, on the webpage as well. Well, Thomas, because Drago is in the desert now, <laughs> I want to say thank you so much for taking so much time. We ended up talking for two and a half hours. I think it's about an hour longer than we discussed originally, but you have <laughs> such an amazing story. I and mean, we didn't even really touch the, the Iraq side, but again, you know, you and Jocko discussed the that. Book, there is a book coming up. To, oh. uh, yes, the, the, with Dan Bongino, a publisher. Uh, we have a contract on the book, so um, the book should be coming out. It's not about the Navy sales book. This is the book uh, mostly about the, my experiences in socialism, uh, within the socialism system. And of course, I can avoid the bigger part of my life as a Navy SEAL. To, I cannot avoid that. There's going to be in the book, but uh, the, my focus is on uh, kind of make people aware how dangerous the socialism is. So it is coming up in the next year, I think in the spring or summertime. Hey, James, and, but I would like to also return for a second to Jacko, because Jacko not only taught us jiu-jitsu, and he was awesome operator, but um, uh, I think it, it is, I need to say that also he was a great leader. He is a great leader. It helped us all as SEALs uh, to work under his leadership because we trusted him, and uh, he had so much command and respect that it was actually very easy. He, 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 he's natural leader. So he, instead of pushing people, he was pulling people. And uh, I, I think for me, the time working with Jacko in the, in the platoon and then in Baghdad, I think it was like a highlight of my career to um, great guy, great leader. And uh, again, we trusted him with our lives and we, I, we never question even his decisions because they were always good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was the, 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 the great, uh, for me, it was the great time uh, when I was working with him. So anyway, so uh, I just had to say it, that there's not only the jujitsu thing, that he, he is awesome in it, but he's also a great leader. And it makes us, at least this was my feeling, when we're, whenever we're going on up with Jago under his leadership, I felt safe. I mean, I, I, you know, I always felt safe that I don't have, uh, well, I'm, I always, I, I liked what I do, but the working with Jack was actually uh, a highlight of my career. I really like that. I really, really like his leadership style and uh, uh, him being great operator on the top of it. So it was great. That's, uh, I just had to add it because I think, I was talking a lot about jujitsu, about the stuff that he taught us, but I didn't mention his leadership style and his uh, uh, great performance as a as a leader in the SEAL teams. 
Beautiful. Well, you said something that was very interesting. You said rather than push us, he would pull us. And I'm sure that that means kind of get us to rise up to our own level. So when you look back, what were things that Jocko did that maybe some other leaders that you worked under as well weren't doing as well? As many of them are doing the same, pretty much the same thing, but what, the way he carried himself, his expertise in the sale teams as an operator was never, it was unquestionable. Um, he, remember, he was a Mustang. He was an enlisted guy just like us. He understood how we think. So I think it was for easy for him to lead us. And uh, again, we tried to emulate him and, uh, and follow his path versus him trying to push us into certain path. So uh, that was kind of easy. Beautiful. Well, please let me know. I'll, I'll share it on all my platforms, including connecting, mm-hmm. but I probably won't need to because <laughs> you're on it. Um, but yeah, so thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time and telling your amazing story today. Hey, James, thank you so much for giving me the platform to speak. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, I want to give a shout out to my uh, teammates and uh, especially Ryan uh, Birdman. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on.